Made me realise how there's always a person behind the food, and that's what that's where the beauty is. That's where the story is. When you connect with people who love their land and love their produce, like it's just a different ball game. Like I get so excited by the produce we get to work with. I get so excited by the people, the the, the, the people I get to meet. It's it's really quite something special. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Birmingham Food Podcast, Breaking Bread. I'm your host Liam. Sitting opposite me is the awesome Carl. The awesome Carl. That's, that's my porn name. <laughs> <laughs> you got the moustache. I know. Yeah, I've got, the, I've got that whole porn vibe going on You've now. Got the kind of vibe going down. I just need to get some plumbing gear. <laughs> or, like, walk around with a swimming pool, cleaning thing. <laughs> How you doing, man? Yeah, buzzing. No, oh, I said buzzing. I said buzzing a lot. I say buzzing a lot. I don't realise I say it till people like point it out. It's true. Like buzzing's a great thing to be. Yeah, it's better than good. When people say good. Yeah, people say good. Yeah, you're like, oh, are you really? I don't even know where to start. Where we've been eating, man. We like we talked about it on last episode. We're just eating so much at the minute. It's crazy. Yeah, we eat plenty of places. One of my dirty little secrets that I didn't really like to tell people was that I'd never been to Bonehead up until about a month ago. Told you I was losing sleep over that, mate. Yeah, you actually messaged me one morning and said, mate, I could barely sleep last night thinking about the fact that you haven't tried Bonehead. You just warm me up so much. <laughs> and I thought, well, if it's that good, I've got to try it. So we finally sat down and said, look, let's go in this night. And we went and it was even better than I thought it would be. Told you. I thought, you know what, how good can chicken be, man? I mean, I like fried chicken. I don't mind KFC. Yeah, I love, love nothing, chances. Nothing wrong with KFC, man. Love chances for chicken, but oh man, that burger! The, I got the double went for it, didn't I? Double burger. Oh, you went for everything, yeah. And then she says, uh, ha- "Hash brown and cheese." And you're thinking, who's saying no to hash brown and cheese? <laughs> it must be mad. See, I used to all be about the burgers there, and then I switched to the uh, pieces. Oh yeah, the, the tray. That's my favourite. That's bit now. new on them. Then you're doing it. No, they've always sold oh, the pieces, but the the platter trays new. Yeah. You can still order the pieces like you could before you get a leg and a thigh. Yeah. And I genuinely can't think of a better meal on the planet than eating in Bonehead. Yeah, I love it. It's not a lie. We used to go excels all the time. It's like a heavy metal, like goth kind of nightclub, wasn't it? Yeah, the five ways. There'll be plenty of people that know it. People Excel. probably know it. And everything was black. like, And that, that's, that's basically like somebody was in excels and thought... You know, if this place done the best fried chicken in the world and like showed like skateboarding and 90s wrestling on the telly, it'd be like the best place ever. And that's what they've done for Bernard. Yeah. It is incredible. The music is awesome. Everything. It's like it was the place's purpose built for me. Yeah. That's how it feels but when I'm in there. Like if yeah. I designed a place of all the stuff I'd want, yeah, you'd yeah. end up with Bonehead. Yeah, yes, yeah, Sam, Sam. I even got all my favourite beers on tap, like favourite brewery. One of my favourite breweries is Black Iris and they do a lot with them. And that's like, it's even the, it's, you're there, you're like trying to find a fault, you can't find one. Yeah, I couldn't find one. That's I, it, I can't, I can't think of a single problem with the place. They've even got the free, um, they've got free alcohol free beers. 
which is unusual. And not, none of them are Heineken or Beck's. Yeah, none of the shit ones, they've got good ones. And I don't mind Heineken, but like, if you haven't got a lucky saint, <laughs> at least a lucky saint, what is wrong with your life? Yeah, that's it. it's that good that even stuff like that, they must have thought about everything. Yeah. Every little yeah. thing in there has been thought about really carefully. Right, even my seven-year-old loved it. So it was the best. Yeah, you've been about three or four times since yeah, we went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can't stop going now. Yeah. Um, another place we had, like, keeping to the black walls, black floors, black ceiling thing. We went to the wilderness. Yeah. They're doing wicked stuff on Tuesday nights now, aren't they? Mate, this idea of just going crazy on a Tuesday, I'm absolutely loving Collab it. night, six courses, 60 quid. It's an absolute bargain. And we went to the little black... I have to say little... Le Petit Bois one. We went to Le Petit Bois. Ben, Grafton, I, Ben and Tim. In yeah, in that kitchen working hard, man. You could just see the excitement on their face, man. They loved it. Yeah, you could feel it. it was great atmosphere. Because the they sell out. They sold out. I think everyone sold out. Their couch, Eat Vietnam, sold out two nights. Yeah, two And the 11 slow sold out. Sold out in like an hour or so. I know, yeah. You only just told me about that. Ridiculous. Oh, so like, because awesome. it's sold out, I think it just creates the buzz in the in the kitchen in the um, dining room. Because it's two sittings, and we were at the earlier it's one. Three as well. Like, I think for Andy Low and now. Slow, there's four different times you could book. I think that kind of added to the because they had to get us out for that eight o'clock sitting. So yeah, it was like, yeah. and it wasn't rushed, but it nah, was, no, there was no rush. It was nice, you know. What I mean, it created a real buzz. You know, what? it's just nice to see innovation. It's like yeah. he's coming up with ideas. Right, I'll, Tuesday we're quiet or we don't open. We'll just get someone else in and we'll do a collab night. I've only got to do three dishes. They can do three dishes. We can still charge a decent amount. It's very reasonable as a consumer. Yeah. And you get to try like interesting like because this was all fish. Mm. I mean, not the desserts, but. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all fish, and it was every course was banging. And yeah. Alex, all the courses like between Alex and Ben, like couldn't put a piece of paper between them they were so like good all of them yeah because i feel like the competitive nature it wasn't a competition but it kicks in doesn't yeah, it it's like, not like the boat the, night where it's like a winner versus, a loser it's like a, it's a collab night more than anything else it's human nature i think that they want to do the best that they can they're already showing up against the other you know what i mean oh yeah you're not going to turn up and do something shit no, no, so i thought that was brilliant like. but yeah he's got loads more planned and that i think that's going to be a permanent fixture moving yeah, forward no. them tuesdays Fair play to Alex. That's just, uh, yeah, just about something to do. And it helps promote other independents as well. Well, yeah. Just the people that are there. So, yeah, I awesome. love that. Uh, keeping this intro fairly short, I just remembered the whole podcast like two hours long. It's <laughs> um, a wicked episode. Right. If you have we have to listen... spoke about the place. We've, we've spoke about it before on the podcast, how good the food is, haven't we? Yeah, I mean, don't be like the two hours. But if you have to listen to it in two parts, or just have a nice cup of tea or stick it on in the background at work. This is definitely worth listening to. So interesting. David Taylor, Grace and Saver. Unbelievable. Like we said before, I think we talked about it on as one of the intros about when we ate there. And it just felt like we were on the kind of uh, just something special happening there. And when you talk to him, you can feel that man. Like he's so focused, so driven. He's got a clear vision, um, driven by the whole sustainability thing. It's just amazing, man. And I think it's going to be a real special restaurant. I think, yeah. At the moment, it's obviously still special. But they're they're still pushing it to try and get somewhere. And I think yeah. when they get where they're going, I think it's going to be a proper destination restaurant for... It's not even the country, I reckon, like, as a European. It's like... Yeah. 
yeah, I've heard of this restaurant. Let's fly over and try this restaurant. It'd be that sort of level, I think. Yeah, so many aspects of this conversation. I absolutely just loved chatting to Dave and just everything about it just blew my mind. I thought it was genuinely interesting. It's his it? passion for it. Helps. Yeah, He's yeah, pro- yeah. got a proper passion for sustainability and mm. and so he should. Like this is the way it's going now. This is the fight forward. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So. Uh, and if he can do it, and he can do it at the venue that they've got, then why not do it? Hopefully, you find this conversation as fascinating as we did. Like we were mesmerised. I think David it's just his career. Like he's a young lad still, in the places he's worked and the stuff he's done just blew my mind. Just a who's who of like three stars and two stars and one <laughs> star. It's like mental all across Europe. Talking about like life in Norway and stuff like that as well. Obviously, if you do enjoy this episode, please go and like and review us and help us spread the positive Birmingham food message. Birmingham is amazing. We're trying to tell as many people about how amazing it is and tell them all about the cool people who are involved with the Birmingham hospitality scene. So please just go and do that for us and we'll love you forever. Ladies and gentlemen, David, Grace and Saver. David, massive thank you for inviting us down to, I don't know, beautiful is just not a good enough word, is it? Like this restaurant is stunning. Mate, I want to live in your restaurant, <laughs> seriously. Yeah, like, seriously. Whoever you does the work in here, like if I had enough money, I'd be like, right, they're coming to do my house because this is so nice inside. Yeah, I feel like this, with this restaurant, I feel a very lucky man and everything's going on, but this is uh, Fiona Unchained, uh, Fiona Hill, the yeah. creative director, it's her Unchained. It's been amazing to be able to create a restaurant in this space. It's just beautiful, like everything, kitchen, the layout. I mean, people have probably seen our photos because we've eaten here and took plenty, and I think there'll be some more photos from this that we'll mm. put up. And like, it's just an interior. It's beautiful, mm. absolutely beautiful. And that's even without talking about the food. Visit <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the place. It's just yeah. nice to look at. Mm. <laughs> we'll start where we always kind of start. You didn't just wake up and all of a sudden appear in this amazing restaurant. Uh, mm. Well, how did you get into hospitality? How did you become a chef? Um, so some years ago, I was when I was ten. I was big, falling in love with baking, and um, and always wanted to like keep trying different things and cooking things. Always had a bit of an interest in food. And then uh, when I went to the Good Food Show, like I think it must have been like two thousand two or something, I met uh, Brian Turner uh, at the Good Food Show in Birmingham, nice. and I said to him, like, "I want to be a chef. Like, how, how do I get into being a chef?" And he said, he took me backstage, gave me his card, and says, "Like, come down to London. You can come work in my kitchen." For the day, so I went down to Knightsbridge when I was like 13, and uh, it's Turner's at Knightsbridge, which is closed now, and just spent the day in his kitchen. And I was there, I, I was there maybe for like three or four hours. I, I sort of remember seeing like huge liver, tasted some honey ice cream. We ate tomato pasta out the back. I was just like I fell in love with the whole thing. It was like everyone. It was just yeah, it was so inspiring. That's young, less- that mm-hmm. is, isn't it? Thirteen's mm-hmm? young. Were you? I, can't, I don't presume you were by yourself. No, my mum took me down, <laughs> held <Yeah>. my hand. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was no, it was it was amazing though, and it's and Brian's always been somebody who's just been very generous to the industry, what he's given in, in um, uh, supporting Brit- the British culinary scene, and he's such a he's such a gentleman, and um, and then yeah, and just even one of them at work experience, I did work with him, at, uh, worked in his restaurant he had in Birmingham, and he's just always been really really good to uh, really good to me, and then that kind it's of a character. Passion. 
Huh? <laughs> it's a proper character. Well, it's weird. Well, I was think you know, I would have seen, and I never seen it as like an adult self. Like I saw him as, you know, I was a young boy looking up mm. to him kind of thing. So I never got like, so Birdie's a bit of a character, yeah. but who that is, I have no idea. <laughs> All I know him is he was this guy who's like, come down to London, see my kitchen. And then, you know, always tap me on the back and say, well done, David, keep going. He never did anything more than that. Like I yeah. tell him a story, like, who is this kid? But he would always say, go on, keep going, keep going. And then, um, but then, yeah, and then from, you know, from there, it was just always wanted to, uh, I went to, uh, I went to UCB uh, to study culinary arts management because they had this placement year that I was like, you could go, they said they could go and work in any restaurant in the world. I was like, right, this is going to be it. I, I was, I was sh- sure I'd been working part-time for a couple of years in a really, really nice bistro, like learning some nice things, but I knew I wanted, I wanted to be really, really wanted to work on my craft and I just didn't know where to go, what to do. And when they said, like, you can go anywhere, I thought, find out. Like, there's got to be some great places. And I was, at the time, working for a chef called uh, Campbell Starr, who was, he used to be the head chef of Titanic, Marco Pierre White's Titanic. Wow. Um, like the infamous one that kind of caught, well, there's a lot of stories behind that place. <laughs> uh, but he, um, uh, he was pretty hard on me, but he was an amazing cook and an amazing chef. And he was the one who was like, you should go to Maze by Gordon Ramsay. Like, that's, that's the place to go. If you've got an in, go to Maze by Gordon Ramsay. That's what everyone's talking about. That's the restaurant. I had no idea about this place or anything about the industry or really about Michelin stars. And then I went in there and, you know, it was just like, just opened my doors. I just knew what that. What year was that? There. That was 2007, I think it was, 2007, 2008, something like that. Was that about the height of the boiling point kind of thing or...? It was a bit just yeah. a bit after. That would have been after. Yeah, Boiling Point yeah. was like 99, 2001 or something. Yeah, maybe. But yeah. it was the height of his, like, that's when, like, F Word was yeah, around. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I remember being a part of Restaurant Gordon Ramsay Holdings, and it was huge at the time. They were opening restaurants at Foreign Centre. Angela Hartner had just done, had just gone to the Connaught, um, and obviously, Mark Sargent was at, Cla- at Claridge's. Petrus has been talked about getting two stars. Um, and then, obviously, being at Mays, where uh, there was a lot of hype around Mays. Mays won restaurant, like, the more restaurant of the year. Um, um, that year as well like it was it was a really sort of like the restaurant that being looked at and it was, it was phenomenal it was a really tough kitchen it was the longest year in my life I've never worked so many hours in all my life just thinking though but did you when somebody suggested Mays did you not look at the personality you've seen on telly of Ramsey and think oh no fuck that <laughs> 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 that looks too scary yeah no there was a young chef you might that's what I'd be thinking you know, like, yeah. if you didn't know any better I, it's weird I don't know why and when I, I wouldn't recommend it either. Like I lit, it, it was it was really tough, and it was not healthy for a nineteen-year-old. Like as I moved to London on my own, it was a really sort of like coming of age moment of like face hitting, getting hit in the face hard by life. No, because like living in London's tough. Like I was living in Ealing. No, not Ealing. Sorry, I wish I was living in Mile End. <laughs> Literally, like just slid on different scales there. Uh, living on Mile End, which got voted the worst area to live in the UK when I moved there. Tower Hamlets was the area. Didn't really like comprehend what I'd taken on, but just knew this is what I had to do. This is like I had to take on this experience, and if I could, if I could work through that, as rough as it might be, as tough as it might be, like it'll only make me a better chef, and it'll only be lessons that I can take forward, and it'll only be a huge stepping stepping stone. And like, um, and like I say, like as 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 things might have been unhealthy, like the tough hours, tough conditions, the hard taskmasters as they were, like it got me onto the next step. Would I say that's what? that stuff has to stop and that like that that day and age is over uh very much so and it's and it's hard i always have this like tension of like you know way a kitchen should never be abusive however for me it developed my 
a tough skin, but do I promote it? Not at all. It's horrific. Mm. It causes, we've got reason why we've got mental conditions and we struggle with stress and we, the, the industry's in the state it is, we've got no staff or anything like that. For me, that build to resilience and, and know there's a better way of doing it. But then, but then saying that, like if, I, if I'm honest from that, I came away, I learned a lot of skills, but I came away and then went to Pennell's because Jason had to be up on Great British Menu at the same time. I just really want to work for Glynn and put it at Birmingham. And then he put me in touch with Glynn and Glynn agreed to take me on part-time, even though that's not what he does. And um, and it was just before they won the star and they got to kind of be in that team. And again, Glynn kind of saw like I was a bit a bit broken, a bit like, you know, I was a bit nervous, you know, and he just come up to me like, Dave, just put the sauce on the plate. What's going to happen? I'm going to punch you in the chest. So what? <laughs> he wouldn't, he would never punch me in the chest, but his, his point was, it's like, just do it. What's going to go wrong? I'm going to get upset at you. So what? I'll be upset and then I'll be, then I'll be, be done with. Um, like it, it's, it, he, he breathed a certain confidence in me. He took me under his wing and said like, and said, yeah, all that stuff that happened was rough, but look like, look what the chef he can be. Like he could see, he saw the creative potential in me and he breathed a sense of confidence in me. And I think 18 months, 18 months, two years later, he made me sous chef. And I remember he asked me, he called me to ask me to do it. And I was like, I'm, I'm not ready. Like I'm, I'm too young. I'm only like, I think it was 23 at the time. I was like, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I can do it. He's like, I believe in you. I, I'll train you. And, I, and, I, and the thing is, that was the thing. I wasn't necessarily ready for the role, but he breathed in me that, uh, the skills I needed and the confidence I needed me and like led, led me in that. And at the same time, Luke Butcher was, you know, he was the head chef there. And Luke was, again, brilliant with me. He, he came at the same time, around the same time. He'd just come over from, from Hand and Flowers. And uh, he, he had just a little bit more, he had, he had like another year on, on me in terms of experience. And that was just made such a difference in terms of like kind of just gave me a bit, gave me some solid foundations to kind of grow in my leadership. And I wasn't a great leader at the time. Like I did, I went through, I reflected what I learned at May. So I was shouting, I'd throw things and uh, I was abusive and, and, it, and it was, wasn't right. And it was, it was something of, um, uh, I think something that I realized that you, that in that position, you like, you, all you want to do is kind of, you, you, you constantly figure out what is the right thing to do here. Like, how do I lead? How do I, how do I be a Michelin star sous chef and like carry those, uh, carry that, like those standards and like put that demand up there. What is the best thing for them? You know, and I, I come from an experience where, you know, if something was thrown at you, that was to keep you focused and keep you like on top of your game. Um, but there's no question of like, there was like, potentially causing mental damage a men, a mental health problems or was that um or was that even a necessary right way of leading and that again Galen and Luke nurtured me in that and not like nurtured me into being abusive nurtured me in terms of like uh, <laughs> so of, going, punch of, punch <laughs> get, like put, pulling the chain a little bit and pushing me out there like kind of keeping me giving me that space and like um there's and there's and I think then I remember I definitely got to a place where I realized that wasn't, it, was never, it wasn't how I wanted to lead and how I wanted to be. And then when I went abroad, um, that's when it kind of opened my mind and changed my opinion. Like there, there's, a be, there's a different way of doing it. And like I say, like you know, really clear, like um, uh, what that was, that was, was nothing, on, nothing that Glenn and Luke were ever like that. It was always like how I chose to lead. Um, it's crazy though, isn't it? Because as a chef, it's not like you really get any kind of real management training. You just work hard or, or sometimes you just stick it the longest mm. and then you happen to fall in, the, the sous chef leaves, so you've been here the longest, step up kid. Or, mm. But there's no extra training on the side to say, well, this, this is our practice, this is how we like to manage things or this is how you could deal with. Like, there is set management um, like training procedures that mm. will help even in a kitchen from any role, mm. from any job, from other industries and 
it's just, it's just mind blowing. It never happens. Even all the way up to like, you become the head chef, and all mm. of a sudden it's more like a, a business manager kind of mm. role, and you'd, you've had no training in that hardly mm. at all. Like it's it's just blows my mind though. It works mm. to be honest. But I suppose your first insight into sort of fine dining that was more of the rough and ready. So mm. that's probably imprinted on you and. Mm. I'd imagine that has it does have a lasting impact, especially mm. early on in a career when you're trying to forge your own name and stuff. Mm. I'd imagine. Do you have any positives oh. you take away from your early um, days at May? Is like anything that you've kept kept with you? Anything? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, like, I think that you know the thing that uh, that I always loved 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 about that place was like the the food was the food was wonderful and the um, what what. Jason would put together and his ideas, his thinking was, was, was really inspiring because he would, J- Jason's always like kind of wanted to play on, take a different play on things and make things quite fun. Um, I was even just like uh, uh, taking on the sheer task of a new station, not being overwhelmed by, oh, right. I, mem- I remember the first night I got put on Garnish. You know, it was the one thing that I wanted. I desperately wanted to be on Garnish before I left Maze. I'd done cold larder, hot larder and pastry and I was like, I just want to do Garnish. And they got put on there and I just was so nervous. Mm-hmm. And I was just a wreck. Like, I know, and it was such a big section. The pass was like massive. I can't reach. And it was like, there was this, um, the hot lamp that ran across it. My arm, when I put the, garnish up the sous chef or whoever's plating because it was nine shoot there was like 10 sous chefs there and i and then when i reached i put my garnish up and he could he couldn't see so like, where's the garnish where's the garnish give it and you get spoons whistling past your head or something like that <laughs> and yeah by doing that being in that i learned how to run a section how to get set up and be be prepared and and then i just you know also just uh, i remember a guy called Bo. Like, uh, so Bo was like head chef of Monoma for like 10 years and now he's got his own place in Copenhagen called Luca he's an amazing chef he's an amazing amazing chef even uh, having someone like that stand up for you I remember one of the girls like said Dave what are you doing Why, where's, the, where's the garnish and then uh, Bo was like shut up shut up Zoe. what are you doing leave him alone will you he's trying to get ready <laughs> like, and it's this weird like I don't know it's just being in that at a young age like you, you it's one of those things, that's the thing I'm learning there. I'm learning that being in that environment, trying to like survive, get used to being on the section, get myself set up, organising myself, taking all the experience of others. And that's what, that's what grew me as a chef. You know, it's like, like I say, the abuse and everything else, that's what I would ultimately say would slow me down. That's what slows you down because you're then battling those, that, that mental, uh, the, the mental battle that goes on. But ultimately, you're... Um, uh, the things that really shape you is your craft you know ultimately like, I learned how to run a section then I went to Glynn's it was like then he could fo- uh, work on that formula that he taught me how to cook how to prep meat and fish and how to you know and a groom a craft and that's what it's ultimately about becoming a your craft and touching what you just said about leadership like that's the that's the hard one thing you're not you know you're not really taught like and I, and I don't know like uh, a lot I would say you know I did okay at school I wasn't you know didn't do awful, didn't do brilliant, but you know a lot of you know, chefs I haven't worked with, like you know I haven't, we haven't done brilliant at school. Going to be be a chef, you know, because we're passionate about cooking, like, and um, and yeah, it's also that industry where you know if you didn't if you did what you want to do, didn't work out, like there's, it's all we are quite a big family. Just take people in, and then suddenly you go from learning how to, like cooking to suddenly like leading people and it's that's a huge step a huge educational gap that's like desperately needed and like doing it in a healthy way is i think you, you like i how it is with me i battle insecurity like you know I, I, um do they trust me do they believe in me was that the right thing have a, um what if i am wrong is that a good idea like you um you know and there's an element of like that um dictatorship style 
of bullying and aggressiveness, well, that and fear, no one's going to answer you back. If everyone's scared of you, no one's going to say anything. And that's a sa- that becomes then a safe place where you're like, okay, now I've got control because no one dares say anything to me. And then I now feel like I've got everyone under control. But, it's, but that prevents so much. That it prevents creativity. It, prevent, it shuts down people, stops them being all it can be as a chef. I think there's, a, there's probably, you know, there's, there's a lot of very talented cooks out there that, will, you know, in, uh, in the right conditions can, be, can thrive and become brilliant, brilliant chefs. Um, but it's really hard because it requires so much more patience, it requires a lot more listening and, and taking in. And, it's, and all the while, you've got a restaurant to run with demanding customers, a guest, and, a, and you know, it's not saying, oh, you've got to let the standard slide. You can't. So that's the constant tension of like, where I'm with sta- like maintaining what you're doing, but also me- like being aware of mental health and uh, and someone's craft and some and like they're a human being, you know, taking care of them. I'm I'm always very aware of it, like when we're talking about uh, mainly when we're talking chefs who just start when they talk about the starting off in industry, especially at high pressure environments like maize. But it, it was also a very different time, and I, I'm not condoning mm. it or saying it was right, but just back then. That was every kitchen. Like yeah, that, it was, yeah. That's just how it was. And that, that's not right. It shouldn't have happened. But that's how it was. Mm. You know what I mean? So, I, I mean, I feel like you, I don't know how much you beat yourself up about that mm. time at Penales, but like you were a product of a certain time. You mm. know what I mean? You kind of touched on when you moved abroad then, it, it was a bit different. Was it always different, do you think, mm. when you were abroad? I don't know, speaking to other chefs who have probably been there longer than you were, is it like an English thing or an American or a Western thing mm. that we were like our kitchens were like just crazy? I think there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of influence from you know, I mean, these old school French kitchens. I mean, mm. the the stories that come out of them like it, it's it's it, it's it's wild. Like in some respects, like you say, it's, it's a product of a time and and things have changed and it's, it's really really important. That it has I just remember. Um, Though when I was remember the the thing that I re- the thing that changed for me when I was at Penals like uh, was that I recognised that w- my leadership was coming from a place of insecurity like I as much as Glyn and breathed so like it shaped me you know Luke taught me some a lot of great things and I and I and I was being invested in I got to, I think I got to a place where I didn't feel secure that if they just stepped away whether I could actually hold that down and I knew that's what I needed I needed a finishing school somewhere to like kind of um to, to like pull on those strings I guess and then when I went I went to Chicago went to went for a week at a restaurant called Grace and it was uh headed up by Curtis Duffy who's that's now closed now and he has now as a restaurant called Ever um and um it was a phenomenal I mean we had entry music like you came in, right? There's entry music that I, I kind of I almost felt like, why are my hair sticking on the back of my... You know what I mean? It was like some like, I don't know, wrestling entrance or something. And then uh, you go down, you go uh, walk into the kitchen. It's just stunning kitchen, the whole setup. Everything had been thought about. Like you had spoon pots where constantly running water, waste bins built into the bench tops. Like it was just insane. And then you go downstairs like, and you're walking down the stairs and it's just all these le- legendary chefs like, Paul Bacuse, Rene, like just all the chefs from all over the world, just like planted all over uh, over there, just to like kind of remind you who you of you know who else is like great chefs in the world. And then above the steps, above the door, as you walk through, as you got into the change room, it said something like along the lines of everyone who walks this door is a part of the great the great story. And he, and he went in there, and there's this huge lounge area with this TV set up and stuff. And then in the changing room, there was like 
pictures of everyone on the on the lockers and uh, with all the names. So you know, it's your first day. You, you never have to worry about oh, who's that? Oh, I didn't know who that was. And I just went and, the, and this guy was just changed the game in terms of how to when you think about your people. They were doing workshops that you come in and you know you get people in so they got constantly training the chefs. He made them stay and watch a movie one night because he was like, this movie's gonna inspire my team. And obviously, any if you work. If you work, you have to be paid. So he paid them all. You know, everyone gets paid hourly. Everyone got paid to stay to watch this movie because he was like, "You all need to understand. Like, <laughs> this is what it takes." <laughs> so uh, and and that, and you know, and that's even before we got into the food. And no one could arrive till one o'clock. And they had staff food at like five, and they did sixty covers, and it was and you know, one three stars. I've never seen people because obviously, again, paid hourly, you can only work a certain amount of hours in the states. I've never seen people run so fast. It was mad. Yeah. It, it was mad. It was mad. people. Were, it was insane. I've never seen people so stressed running so fast to get ready for service, and it was mad that they could do sixty covers a night and uh, and that level. And they won three. No, they won. Yeah, they won three stars uh, that that year. Uh, about six months after I, I've been there, uh, in his second year, he won three stars. It was, like, it was an amazing achievement and uh, like changed changed my opinion. And, uh, and I went to Anita Alinea as well uh, while I was over there. And Altuo, which is Altuo was a two star that's now closed, and Alinea, which is obviously uh, really famous. And the, again, all of them kind of just opened my eyes to what else there is in the world. And I had this feeling of like when you go abroad, that's what changes your game. And you know, everyone from Sat or Glynn, they all done it, all gone abroad. Um, and it, it, it made me, I really felt like that was going to be something significant. And then, um, and I really wanted to move to Chicago, but it didn't really work out because of visa, visa issues and not being able to wait. So then uh, Glynn was one was like, all right, go to New York. Like, don't stop this. You've been, got a taste for it, go for it. So I went to New York uh, in the, uh, in the spring and got job trials at, um, Atira uh, when Matthew Lightning was there at the time it was a two star and then I went to uh, a trial at Momofuku Co as well uh, which is David Chang's uh, place and um, uh, I was really excited and we went to when I got <laughs> when I got to Atira they, um, they were like who are you and I was like I'm David I'm, I'm here for the trial it's like yeah Matthew Lightning Matthew Lightning had, had left and uh, Ronnie Emborg, had, who was the who had won two stars at AOC in Copenhagen, had been taking over and basically they'd shut the restaurant and he was just doing they were just in development and moving the restaurant around and you know doing everything else like that. So I'm like, man, this is a bit of a disaster. Like I've only got one trial left here. Like, but I said, can I still come and hang out and just do a few days with you? And it was only meant to be one day and I ended up doing four days with them. And that was amazing. And one of the things that I learned there, and like, you know, this sort of builds my story, one of the things there, they were working on macaroon serving. And there was a girl there, she was 20 years old, and she'd just done finished her apprenticeship at Saint Georges, a uh, three-star in New York, and all she'd done was make macaroons. That's all she'd done. And the pastry chef, who was like 30, and you know, obviously she can make macaroons. I just got her to like to, to come up with to present to present some macaroon ideas. And it was like one of those humbling moments. Like I remember thinking it's like I'd always felt that only it was always that mindset that senior people are the ones who do the menu. And it was the one that was definitely one of those moments where I was like, anyone can bring an idea. And later on, that would play a bigger role when I came to, when I went to MIMO because Jordan, that was something Jordan Bailey pushed at MIMO. It was like you've got to you got all this wealth and knowledge in the team. You've got to lean into it. Um, and I really felt that was it was yeah very very sort of inspiring environment to be around. So yeah, the tier took some. It was a wonderful restaurant. Never got to see service, but got to see some really cool ideas and worked with a really great team and they were lovely. And then I went to Co and um, and Co was 
Koza stunning restaurant. Like if you're ever there, it's so cool. It just like it like I I felt so uncool being there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm so out of place here. So I just felt so uncool. Like it was just it was all like graffiti. It's like these concrete bench all graffitied and they, all the like all the meat hanging up and and um, and I, yeah, I was like man, and everyone had to wear like flat tops and there was no calling out checks. Just people sat down and food would just start coming out and you just basically had to watch out. Like so I was on the bread bread section for the evening just mainly so I watch service see how things are going on and uh, literally I just had to watch for when the egg dish went and when the egg dish went then I knew it was me next so I had to get mine ready and then go and present it when it got cleared it's the weirdest weirdest way but it worked really really well and it was so cool because like six o'clock first sitting like the guy literally got his fish out and he would just start filleting it down right prepping it cutting it all up blah, blah. it was like this like show started right if and it was like, oh, this is so cool. They're doing the mise en place during service. And literally at eight o'clock, second sitting, it just literally went like in rewind and everyone just started again. Like it was like, like it was like deja vu. Literally just saw that I did the same thing, got the same fish <laughs> out, prepping all that. It so, so smooth and so yeah. slick and such a cool environment. Was just, it open kitchen so that the customers could see that as well? Yeah, yeah. so uh, the, all the guests sit around there. I was going to say, so that was it, yeah. the whole point of it. So mm. it was a spectacle. It mm. adds to the theatrics of the uh, evening, yeah? Mm. Yeah, exactly that. You, know, you sat around watching, wherever you're watching, you're watching someone cooking something. However, I just, I struggled in the, t- I struggled in the team. Like it was, a, it was a, it, it wasn't, it was a bit like, no one seemed to be with each other. Like they, used, they all seemed to be against each other. Like mm. it would have been a grace and everyone would like, was like tight. A really tight team, but it seemed a bit disjointed. And the food was wonderful. And like um, the, the exec chef now is there before he's now gone. But like, massive respect for him and uh, some of the guys there were really, really great. But I just felt this just didn't feel right. And they offered me a job, and it was really hard because it's like it was like kind of like you don't why would, you never turn it down. Like, there was a visa opportunity, <laughs> chance to live yeah. in New York, and it's like this is going to be big. David and, Chang, yeah, David <laughs> Chang, like yeah. it's it's really really big. <laughs> And then I remember, I remember this is the moment I spoke to Glenn about it. He said to me like, "Oh, look, he told me the story when he turned down. He turned down the job. He got off a job at sous chef at the Manoir. And like, you know, especially at that time. I mean, even now, I mean, it's in the Manoir, it's the Manoir. But like, you know, at the time, like, the Manoir was the restaurant. You know, this I think it was the early two thousands. And he just said to me, it just didn't feel. It just didn't wasn't the right move for him. It just didn't feel like it was the right place he needed to be. Like he couldn't didn't know why. He there was nothing against the restaurant. It just wasn't that right one. And then ultimately he went to work for Claude Bozzi and did hibiscus and that very much transcended his style of food and what he then brought to Birmingham. So you know it was the right call. And I think then ultimately for me I turned down that and then went to Copenhagen uh, to go to go to did a, did a Stage at Relay, which was again mind blowing, but ultimately went to MIMO, and that that experience, all this experience, has kind of ultimately led me to here. Um, why did you go? Why did you choose to go from America to Denmark? Because because again, New York didn't work out, and then at this point, I was I said to Glenn that I was leaving. Like, I was like, all right, I'm looking for something. And he knew that, and it didn't want to keep like dragging that out. And he had all the patience in the world. He's like, Dave, don't worry about it. Do the no, I work with me to the summer. Like you. Your effort doesn't stop. You keep on giving, like whatever you're learning, you bring it into the kitchen. Like you know, you, I've got all the time in the world for you. I just that was where the buzz was was Copenhagen. I'd re, I'd been heard a lot about Relay, how it had been. Uh, it was all about sustainability. It all, you know, and again that word was a bit like we. Um, I remember doing the Sustainable Restaurant Association Award scheme with Panels, and we won two star, two sustainable stars there. And I was like, but when the process of doing that, it was there was 
a scratch above the surface. My the suppliers would give such vague answers. There was so little like real meaty truth out there. But relayed like was this is what they were all about and about how they source produce and how they were thinking about things. So I was like, all right, they, I really wanted to go and be a part of them. And Pugliese had been sous chef of Noma, like nearly every other restaurant in, uh, in Copenhagen. You can't open a restaurant unless you've been sous chef of Noma. Uh, um, but he was, you know, he was a really cool guy. And obviously had Manfred's across the road. It was a lot of buzz. And I went there. And it was a really cool uh, setup and uh, restaurant. Really loved the food. And uh, they wanted me to go and work at. Um, Beast first as a sort of like initiation so you start off at Beast and then you work through Manfred and then you come over to Relay sort of thing but I really wanted something I really wanted to kind of like I, was, I felt like I wanted to be jump in the deep end and Beast is amazing it's a pizza it's a pizzeria where they make all their own charcuterie and um, make their own mozzarella and all this sort of stuff it's like it's a really really cool thing like everything is craft related like they're they're, they're making everything they're farmers they take it they're, I've never seen a veg delivery like it like this truck would pull up. I've never in all my life have seen so much produce. Like it was, you go in the fridge and it was like, um, you were surrounded by green crates all around you. And like, ah, oh, go and get me three cauliflowers. And I have to take like, <laughs> stack all these crates off to find, find the cauliflowers. And you literally have to move like crates back, slide them, move them back. It was like a game of Tetris, like moving all these crates around. It's just uh, insane. But they were just plow through all this produce and it all came from a farm where they would employ the, uh, people with special needs and people who uh, ex-convicts whatever else like that people who basically could struggle to get work and employ them on the farm um, and then obviously they produce the produce and they would oh, that's you know, that's how they make this farm work so it's so community based as well and it was again one of those moments like oh I can run a re of running a restaurant that also thinks outwardly not just inwardly it wasn't just you know a restaurant that was like what are we doing and how are we doing look how we look at us it was a restaurant that was thinking outwardly like he wanted he brought that pizzeria to Copenhagen he brought that uh, amazing bakery in um, um, Maribel is it I think it's called or and then obviously Manfred's been the relaxed version sort of almost a relay and just really, really great, really, really uh, inspiring stuff. But then when that was like, when that wasn't really gonna work out, I just sent it, Mima was on my list as well. And I was like, right, I'm, I'm, if I don't do this now, the next time I could go was Easter. And I was like, I've got to try somewhere else before. So then I emailed Mimo uh, and luckily a girl had just handed a notice in and they said, oh, well, if you can come for a trial, fly to Norway, on Tuesday and come for a trial so that's what I did instead of flying back to England flew to Norway did my trial signed a contract on the same day and that was it I'd even been spending time learning Danish uh, really badly really badly uh, and and then suddenly like I mean, my head being in Denmark and Copenhagen and uh, like looking at apartments and stuff and then suddenly I was moving to Norway which I really knew nothing about really in Norway but yeah man Mima was just some, uh, was something else and how long are you at Mima for? So just in the, just in the two years I got there, I arrived, I started in October. Uh, Mima was all about taking through the journey of Norway. And there was one thing that I, I started to, you know, what I really wanted to be, able to be a part of was to be a part of a team that was, that was a two or three star level and get to understand what that was like and, and be pushed by that. Glenn had always said like that time of working, you know, every, or you know, not just Glenn, but other, other chefs had just said that time in two and three star restaurants just kind of could really shape you. And it was, and, and it was just, and the great thing to be part of, Luke Gould talked about his time at Per Se as well. And Mima was so crystal clear what it was about. It was everything was about celebrating Norway. It's about Norwegian culture. If you had gone there as a foreigner, you would uh, you'd learn you you could actually get to kind of um, 
know, learn more about Norwegian culture and come in contact with the food and stuff, or like the ideas he was creating. And then on the other hand, uh, if you're a Norwegian, like so, when I went when I went with my wife, completely different experience. Like I'd say, like if you can go to Maima with a Norwegian, like mind blowing. Like for Aneta, like all these stories. My wife's Norwegian, and all these stories that like, came out of Aneta, and like, everything from they had this burning bush where they so in Norway they. Um, uh, when we're out in the forest and you take juniper bush and you put it on the fire to make the fire smell nice. So we had this juniper ice cream with this uh, fermented blackcurrant uh, uh, and a juniper oil dish, the dessert. You put it on the burning bush of juniper. So just like the instant emotion that I saw in Annette's eye. Like for me, I thought it was really cool and like, you know, this is really nice. But the emotion in Annette when she had that was like, and then he got this dish called Rumgrot which is uh, it's what they eat on like, special occasions and birthdays. And it's literally sour bechamel, basically. They take, they take uh, sour cream, uh, they call it, uh, cook it out with flour until it splits, take out the butter, the, like, the butter that spits out of it. They then keep that to save it because Norway used to be really, really poor. And then you add a load of milk to it um, and, uh, and then a bit, a bit of vinegar. And you either have it with, uh, and it becomes like a um, thick, like, Soup, soup can kind of consistency like bechamel, but it's a bit sour. And they'd have it with uh, cured meat, or you have it with cinnamon and sugar, and that's like that's the main meal that you have, and a bit of butter in the middle of it. And, you know, it's so humble. And then like then Esmond's serving it in in Mimo that's won three stars. For Norwegians, it's like the most proudest thing. Yeah. Like their dish is like in a three Michelin restaurant. Like there's you know there's there's a patronism within Norwegians which is so humble. Like they're so proud of the country. Like if a Norwegian I don't know I don't know gets gets voted world best potterer. Right? Not digging pottery or whatever. Like you know we've got lots of great potteries in this country. Lots of great potteries. But if it was like no, got ranked number one, it would be famous all over Norway, regardless <laughs> yeah, of whatever they've done. You know, like they made the best beer in the world. Like every Norwegian, have you, have you tasted the best beer in the world? It's Norwegian, and it's not. It's not an arrogant thing. They're just so proud. And so and it is. It's so nice because I often think as well as a British person, I feel like it's hard for us to be sometimes be proud to be British, mm. you know, and we are good at taking, taking the mick out of ourselves. We're brilliant at that. But, you know, it sometimes gets related to being racist or like we've done, we've been pretty harsh on the world. We've like taken every country and then like we've given them back and all this. It's a bit like we've not got the greatest reputation. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so it feels hard to be proud of like when, you know, when our sports people do really, really well, like, you know, um, some someone actor wins an Oscar and then on the next day it'll be like talking about how he's been cheating on his wife or something it's like it's just there's no sense of like no. let's celebrate people but yeah, annoying weird thing where we really build them and it's the same in Ireland like yeah. all my family's Irish we, we build them up build them up build them up and as soon as they get any level of success we're like ah oh, fuck him <laughs> <laughs> ah, he's got too big for his boots he has yeah, yeah. Yeah. he's forgot where he's come from here look at him yeah. <laughs> like, why do we do that we tear him down we do. build him up to tear him down that's mm. literally what it feels like <laughs> I feel like especially here we build up the wrong things yeah. as well like there's really good stuff going on that we do and that, that goes under the radar yeah. I think people just, I think Wires crossed a lot of the time. I uh, want to build up the wrong things. I agree. I've got a lot of admiration for um, for that restaurant, especially. But just to be able to turn around and say, "Yeah, everyone's celebrating French cuisine. Everyone's doing it just like the French did." Mm. Now, nah, fuck that. We're, we're going to do Nordic food. We're going to mm. do Norwegian food, and we're just going to do it to a level where it stands out and wins mm. three stars. That's just. 
mind blowing. Like, who stands up and says, "No, nah, I'm not. I'm not doing it like this anymore." <laughs> the best part is that uh, Esben's Danish as well. That was that, that was the bit that was like, <laughs> oh "How do you do? How do you like?" <laughs> His wife's Norwegian, and obviously he'd been there for a bit of time. But he just he was like a man as well. I've never met somebody who just just knew. It's like he knew he was going to win three stars. Yeah. There was this like thing in him. Uh, this is obsessed. There is an, there is an obsessive nation, na- uh, nature about it all. But like, I remember definitely when I, I joined at a very fortunate time, Oli Marlow was one who hired me. He was the head chef of Organic. Uh, and he was on Great British Menu and all that. So he was a great guy. And he was there for a short while. But in that as well, I got to work with James, who's the head chef of, of uh, Adams. Mm-hmm. It was like, Great to work with James. Jordan obviously joined from uh, being sous chef at Sats. Um, it was like it was a really, really, really good team and gr- some great people to be to be with. Alex, obviously, uh, Alex from uh, Yem as well. Oh, man, it was it was some really great chefs in there. Uh, and then Jordan was. This is what I say when I go back around to being a part of that. It's like Jordan was. Um, it was definitely one of the drivers and, and ha- oh, I mentioned Hallie so Hallie uh, was a um, pedder as well I mentioned all the guys because I, I wonder if they'll listen to this and I want to make sure I mention them all <laughs> but uh, Hallie Hallie came over from Norway from uh, Noma and he was, he was a brilliant guy so like such a character in the kitchen uh, it's such a bounce and energy about him he was the one who would be like he would like we need some energy like he'd just always bring it and, and he'd say and they have some great ideas. And this is a part of that, like, one thing I learned about Noma is that never stop asking what more can be done, like, what more ideas. You know, you don't just start, like, that, that I don't know, beef garum tastes phenomenal, but what will it taste like with lamb? What will it taste like with mushrooms? What will it taste like with, like, let's just ferment it. Let's just pickle it. Let's just... And um, it was an incredible team to be a part of. And, and when Jordan definitely, I think, how he managed that team, how he managed it so well is he, he managed to really harness all of our creativity um, Rob as well actually he was, uh, who came over as development came over as development chef and he'd been he's now got Haku which has just been voted 28th best restaurant in Asia or something in the top right. 50 or something he's really uh, great cook and we just yeah harnessed all our creativity and created such an energy and such a team I'd never been uh, we were such a tight unit all of us would hang out on the days off like work crazy hours and we'll hang out on our days off we were a real family uh, and it was just an immense energy to be part of and, and uh, my mind was tiring it was long days and it was challenging it was um, it required really focused really um, intense days but we were like a family and it, that just made such a difference uh, and I really felt that was such a brilliant thing that Jordan did in that time was like how he unified us all and, and made the uh, made it what it ought to be and um, yeah just such a brilliant thing to really uh, be a part of and very much shaped it sort of made that sort of in terms of finishing school of what I took away from there was like uh, I got all this cooking that I got from Glim but what I learned from Esben was like what is the story you want to tell like, what do you want to talk about and just talk about that you know, there's people are doing lots of brilliant things. There's lots of great things you can learn. You can be inspired by all things. But, and, but just tell your story and what you want to talk about. Was this your intention while you were at the restaurant? Did you see the whole time there as a finishing school? Or did you think, I could be here forever? Or was you, your intention there, this is a finishing school for me. I've still got somewhere else to do. I've still got something else to do here. Yeah, I think, I think I'd always seen it as a finishing school. It definitely rocked me. I, that, was, I was, that was where I was right with my mind. I realised where... 
I need a tiny up on how I run a section, how I manage people. We'd have stagiaires. I worked with about 300 different stagiaires while I was there. I learned how to manage, micromanage, like manage, not micromanage, manage a very small team of four or five chefs, two of which might just not turn up the next day. Uh, and then like learn how to manage that workload into just three people, all with very different skill levels. I mean, I worked with exec chefs who didn't know the difference between a spoon and a fork, uh, right through to, you know, very young lads who uh, were just absolute phenomenal uh, workers. I you know I had a stagiaire uh, who didn't speak a word of English, you know, but would st- was still brilliant for me, you know, like it was be still brilliant for me on the, on the station. Like it was, it was an amazing amount of skills there, but also like I got to my mo, I, ne- I never really opened scallops before. Uh, and so when I got there, I got really nervous because I was on the. I remember going, I wanted to meet and fish, and suddenly you had to open a scallop, take it down to the restaurant, present it, take it back up, prep it, clean it all out, slice it, pickle it, then do the first serving, and then get another scallop, start cooking scallops. So suddenly I went from never prepping them to doing 30 a day, and I was just <laughs> thinking, I'm going to rip all these. And I think the first one I did just split it straight in half. Oh, and I'm like, I'm 28 years old, and I'm splitting scallops in half. Like, <laughs> I look like an idiot right now. I'm, I was like, every day I was like, Esmond's just gonna come in the sack, mate. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get sacked. I'm just gonna. I worried about it so much. But it, the thing is, that was the thing I learned. Like, it was okay. Like it didn't matter how old I was or or how young I was. Like I was learning and I was growing, and it was better that I was learning now than then when I got to. I just used to then think about myself. What if I was 35 and I've been given the responsibility of a restaurant and all these things, these questions, these probably these things that I felt nervous. About, I just kind of like hid them away and just didn't want to, didn't want to learn it. Instead, like I was learning them and that. I'm, I got, I got to embrace something that I needed to embrace, which was it was okay to not know stuff. It was okay to that other people knew more than I did. I read a book called Kitchen Nightmares by, what was his name? Legendary chef, he's, he's passed away now. Um, oh, if you haven't read it, you should definitely read it. Kitchen Nightmares. And he just said, number one rule, someone will always be better than you. Just Anthony accept. Bourdain? Yes, yeah, yeah that's yeah. it, yeah, Anthony Bourdain. Was I'm saying. sure I've read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he said, he said, someone will always be better than you. And yeah. that's okay. And I remember like, and then that was the thing when I was there, like just knowing there was lots more skills to learn. There will forever be a lot more skills to learn. And that's the best part of it. Like you never stop working on your craft. You're always going to get better. Someone's always going to come out with you with a, with a, with a dish idea or like an ingredient or a fermentation like that you've never heard of. And that's okay. Cause it's only going to make what you're doing even better. Because um, that's what adds really with, if you know nothing about management, that you think a manager should know everything and be the most intelligent person in the room, yeah. should know everything, and nobody could teach them anything. But mm. really, it's the opposite. Mm. <laughs> they should be able to be. If I'm a manager, I want to be the least intelligent person in the room. You want to be I want surrounding every, I want, yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah that's, that's it. Yeah. And it makes your life easier. Like, it feels like I remember. And it was, so after Mimo, I went through a bit of a I went through a bit of a time where I was like, right, and I, I want to. I was hungry, I wanted to do something else. I really wanted to go to um, uh, David Toutain in uh, Paris. Um, but the French lords prevented anyone from doing stages. Um, so I was like, okay, that's not going to work out. But I, I kind of felt like my time was done at, at MIMO. Or I wanted, just wanted to move on, but I didn't really think it through. Maybe we went through a bit of a midlife crisis. And I got a tattoo, so <laughs> you know how it all goes. It's got the world's biggest tattoo. But the job opportunity came up to be a head chef of a restaurant called the Th- a hotel called The Thief. It's this five-star hotel. It's an amazing place. Like it's a phenomenal hotel. Uh, it was renowned for famous people being there. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a really cool thing, and I misinterpreted how the role, how the role would be. I learned a lot in terms of like 
I have just a whole new level of respect for hotel chefs, like in terms of. Oh yeah, we've been to um, a few. Oh my goodness, <laughs> it's just a different bag. Like, and, and sometimes, and I think as well, I remember, and I've always said this, and I always have a lot of respect for any chef and what you do and everything like that. But I just remember doing it. We did a couple of dinners at hotels and stuff. And I remember the chefs. Like, I know my food is not what you do, right? And it's, I've always like said, and I, I meant that honestly, like, yeah, but we're just in different games. We are in completely different games. Like the food they're turning out for the, what they have to do and how they achieve these things is tough and then you make great food for the you know i would it's funny like put them in mind somewhere i'm cooking for 26 and it is a different it's a different thing completely but like yeah it's a whole new thing of management of like you know when you've got room service breakfast lunch dinner you heart you can't have your hands over everything it was quite it was very much overwhelming but it was an incredible thing to be a part of and i really grew i had to learn how to manage a lot of different uh different different things from um, I had to be more organized. I had to be more, uh, like, think differently. Um, I, had a re- I was very fortunate. I had a really great sous chef uh, called uh, Tim Wanless who came over from, from the Landmark Hotel in London. And he pretty much taught me how to be the head chef of a five-star of a, of a <laughs> hotel. Uh, and he would later become uh, assistant food and beverage manager. And he was just, but it was a, like, it's brilliant. It's brilliant because as well, like there's obviously there's a lot of things that as a chef I want to do, and it wasn't necessarily the kind of food I want to cook. But I grew immensely as a as a as a person, as a leader, and I really foc- used that time to focus on my leadership because that was the place that I could do it. And it was at that point, you know, just during in the midst of I was going on papa paternity leave, which in Norway is four months. It's mega. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. so good. Like the greatest gift Norway's given me is the fact that I've got four months at home with my daughter because it's just changed our relationship completely. Yeah. And it was that just before I went on there, like I felt like I was ready for a new challenge, and I got in contact with James. I got in contact with James. We just been we'd always stayed in touch, and uh, he was like, "Oh, Archie, maybe I've got. Would you be interested in Grace and Saver? This project at the time it wasn't Grace and Saver. It was the the Wall Garden project. So." 45 minutes <laughs> answer, your hour, answer to your question of like how Mate, I got from here. what you've done yeah. you've, you've impressed me just squeezing that mm. all into just 45 yeah, minutes yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> been enough names there yeah. <laughs> I don't remember any of them I've got, well, I mean it's like these things your whole you know my whole career is built you know I've got, this is where the name Grace and Saber comes from like you know it's, uh, I can delve into that in a minute but you know it was a bit of a reflection really like literally this restaurant is built on the grace of others. My whole career is built on the grace of others. Other people being patient enough to show me a technique and to, to guide me, to help me. Like all the chefs in my, you know, a lot I've worked with, whether they've seen something in me or not, still taking that time to teach me something or show me something or lead me to the next place or give you that guidance. Um, you know, if I've gone down in the service, which has disrupted a, uh, a guest's experience, you know, it's that head chef who's had to go out and take that heat but then still allow me to then continue cooking in that kitchen. You know, all those things that have happened, uh, you know, you've been late, you let someone down. Like, it's all like, it, it's ultimately that all that patience and grace has led me to, to be able to be here. And then even now, over this restaurant, I've got friends who, um, you know, our visa t- took time to get over here. And there's people that have given, like, uh, helped us financially to make sure that we could still pay rent or find a place to go. Like, if it wasn't for them to do that, then... I don't know what we would have done. Like, I don't know, like, we 
probably wouldn't even have to come because uh, we just run around out of money and got, we can't come over anymore. Like, you know, James and Fiona to give us, uh, to give me and I said this opportunity to run this and do this. Like my, my team, like sticking through the, it's been really tough, you know, with the, with the staffing situation and all the stuff that's been going on. Like it's been really tough, but the resilience and determination of my whole team here, you know, John and Miguel and Max and uh, B and Tamsin and Chris and Max, everyone, Alex, all the guys that have been literally given everything and Etta, of course it's been given absolutely everything to make this happen and it just uh it's very it's yeah makes you realize there's no uh, there's no i don't know <laughs> no i in any of it there's no like one person <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. in any of it like you know i always think of the bands like always always often fingers around the lead singer but uh it's uh it's definitely not as yeah it takes as i say it takes a village so when you get off of the job what sort of stage is this restaurant that we're in now what stage is it at is it here? Mm. Is it even built? Is it ready? Do they know what they want to do with it? Uh, so, no, at the time, I think, like, for James, he'd always wanted to have a restaurant that, that told the story of the, the garden and the soil. And, and obviously, sustainability has been something I've been really interested in. It was something that I, I, I struggled to get more information on. Everyone was a bit, it was very sur- surface level. Sorry. Everything was very surface level. It was a buzzword that seemed yeah. cool and everyone wanted to be a part of, but once you really got into it, they weren't that sustainable. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's and not it, easy. Is it? No, it's not easy, and it's and and you're always looking for like who's to blame or what who's doing wrong and like why aren't more people doing the right things and actually just look at stuff and it's like well why it's just stupidly expensive they're just trying to rip us off. This project gave me the opportunity. What you know that. Uh, James had kind of got me in touch with his sister Sally, Dr. Sally Bell, who'd been, who um, is a lifestyle do- doctor who kind of got discovered that actually through, um, I'll forget one of them, I always forget one, eat, sleep, movement, uh, rest, and, bre- and breathing. Maybe there's another one. Maybe that's, it. that's all there are five. Like literally every condition can be, almost every condition can be healed. Now, everything starts in our gut. That's what she was like saying. Everything starts in our gut. Our gut microbiome is what's causing much of our issues everything from an allergy to um you know what's it what's it called what's the condition anyway lots of conditions anyway and um there's lots of research into um ironically alzheimer's (laughs) (laughs) skin conditions alzheimer's clearly i've already got it there's a lot of uh, research into like um depression and stuff like that Mm. starts from bad uh, microbiome and stuff Mm. like that 100 percent. it's that gut feeling it's um they call it some people call it what some I'm not sure if it's some cultures or something called a second brain or something like mm. that. Mm. That's, that's, yeah, inter- that's an interesting analogy of it. I haven't yeah, heard that. That's a really I've interesting analogy. That, yeah, I've been quite I've heard it. I think I've heard it off you. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Because I did get into the fermentation thing for a little while and then it's a lot of effort, as mm. you know. Yeah. yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. This might feel like a backward step, but mm. bear with me. You'll, mm. we'll, no, it's fine. We'll, no, no. we'll come round. Um, so you said you learned from Malma. Mm. The, the story how they told the story mm. how did they because for for the story to shine through to the customers mm. it's got to come through everyone from like the menus the interior mm. the staff mm. like how did they tell it to you for you to be able to share it i think it was there was um has been a bit of a certain romance about uh how we talk about the food and everything i mean um, it was great at sourcing produce. Like the produce we used to get through the door was phenomenal. And this is a country that had 3% farmland. But what also Esmond got onto is they were great farmers, but no one really knew about them. And they weren't the best at 
um, promoting themselves. Like they were selling to the, like the local villages or something. I mean, I'm not quite sure the whole story, but um, there are, um, all the Norwegians who listen to this will laugh at me saying that uh, milk is, is an area of where the organic milk comes from. Like, and then he did a couple of products and they weren't that big. And then Esben started using them at MIMO and it mm. exploded. And now it's the like it's the biggest organic milk producer in the, in, in Norway. And another one called Nier uh, Cream Cheese. It's really delicious cream cheese. And again, this guy was like, um, because of Esben taking on this stuff and um, more and more people start using it and it's and it's now used in a lot, a lot of restaurants and Esben really just saw that in a lot of there were a lot of great producers and he would um, and he would he'd just make you fall in love with them we'd meet them like the guy I was going to say did you get to meet them and mm. it's a good way of learning their stories if you actually get to meet them and talk to them yeah, 100%. So the guy who makes the near cream cheese, he came up to visit us. The uh, a biodynamic farmer who was, uh, man, he's such a great guy. He would His produce he'd bring in was just insane. And he would just bring it in. It was always a Tuesday. He would be like, sowing the weeds with, with, me, with mise en place. And he'd just turn up with like, like 20 green crates. And there was, like, there was nine flights of stairs to the basement. So in the moment, there was no fridge storage upstairs. Uh, you had your section fridges, but your the storage, the dry source is nine flights of st- stairs down. It was horrific. And so you just then like you have to stop doing unpack all the green cakes all into cases, like laying up all the trays, getting all running it all downstairs. It's chaos. But the produce man was just amazing. And it would just change. He would just pick he would just pick stuff out and then just bring it. And that's where the sort of the romance sort of comes into it. Because then also Esmond would how he'd talk about things like it could be you know, this is like the black currant bush. Like we tell the story that Espen was in the forest and he thought it was, he could smell black currants, but it wasn't. It was the wood of the black currant. Uh, and so we we took, uh, um, infused it into a milk to make a black currant wood sorbet. Uh, and like it, it, everything got romanticized a little bit, and it stopped being like uh, this is this is a, a ice cream that's made from black currant wood, finished with black currant compote and topped with a, a leaf. Like it was, everything became like its place, its source, its you know who made it, the craftsman behind. It, you know, everything like <clears throat> on the blue cheese dish, the frozen blue cheese with a pick of black trumpet, trumpet. Like, we just get little, we'd always search for little facts. Like, the woman who made it, who made uh, phonics uh, blue cheese, she had a she had a, an education in the mold that grows in blue cheese, and so she literally just used her education to create a cheese. Uh, and it's phenomenal, and it won it wouldn't, wouldn't loads of awards and all sorts. You could then connect people with the produce, and I think that's what then became so much different because we got such a connection. I got to go to um, Shirkanes uh, to go herd some reindeer uh, with the Sami people, uh, and that was just that was wild. Like to we went out at like eight a.m. It was still dark. It was winter. It was still dark. Sun came up at like eleven a.m. and then at one thirty pitch black again so the sun went down and it's just like the sun missed us like it just <laughs> yeah. went was no there and then we just went out on snowmobiles and uh herding reindeer like going around chasing the reindeer hearing the story like i lost my i lost my glove while we were out uh and the sami people uh so they're original people of norway or a tribe of norway that you know still exists and um and uh they are they have rain there you never ask a Sami person how many reindeer they have that's like asking them how much money they've got in the bank account reindeer is their value of life like and have a special connection between reindeer and the Sami people like the wolves know not to go near the reindeer and if they do like the, the Sami will never touch the wolves but if the wolves touch the reindeer then you know it's a break in the trust and all sorts of, like it's it's, uh, it's 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 a real way of life they 100% they're like they're all in on and they um uh, and I lost my glove and obviously all I can see is white for miles. And he's like, 
I think I know where it is. He drove off about 10 minutes, came back and just threw his glove at me. I was like, how did, like, how did you know? And how did you find that? And I mean, so, oh, this is wild. So like, it's weird. I mean, I'm telling about a guy who went and picked up my glove, like, but it was, it was so many inspiring moments. It was such an inspiring, like out of this world experience to be out on snowmobiles chasing reindeer, having this guy find my glove and then him come and tell me stories about him and the Maasai people and how they, um, and how he hunt wolves and how his grandfather crossed the, um, would travel three hours every day to see his wife and all, like, just wild. Then we went back to the house and we just ate loads of reindeer, like just did this whole dinner of reindeer and aquavit and it's just, um, uh, just something you just, I'm never going to experience anywhere else in the world. And it was just made me realize how there's always a person behind the food and that's what that's where the beauty is that's where the story is um and and like you know obviously there's these this big farm that's producing lots of produce but huge industrial uh, size things are doing all kinds of meats or whatever else like that and there's and and like i always say like there's there's no farmer who doesn't care about his land and his and his animals you know he's got pressures there's challenges everything from contracts or all sorts like that but ultimately like when there's when you've connect with people who love their land and love their produce like it's just a different ball game like don't have to like uh, i get so excited by the produce we get to work with i get so excited by the people the the, the, the people i get to meet it's, it's really quite something special well, it gives you an extra ne- an extra level of love for the ingredients you're mm. using the produce you're using it's funny you say that because it's not about money for a lot of these small producers like mm. that i mean obviously they need the money to survive but they genuinely love their reindeer they genuinely love their farms Mm. it just creates something different when it's just for profit you can feel it's just for profit it's mm. the worst reason to do anything mm. but when they truly love something and then they pass it on to you you hear their story and then all of a sudden the respect you will have for that ingredient just goes up a notch doesn't it mm. yeah 100% and, th- and that was the thing when I went back to Mimo that was another moment for me as well when suddenly I would take down the reindeer dish and I would just tell them all about Shokanez mm. And like, oh, what we've done and how, where the reindeer come from and how it's grown and like why we'd use the, why we'd use the, the fat of the reindeer. So obviously reindeer is just like venison. But the difference is because of the cold conditions is the fat on it. It's just phenomenal. Mm. It's just so uh, foresty, the fat is. And yeah, and, and, but I'm not just saying, oh, look, I've, I've been sent this piece of reindeer that like I was telling guests this story. And that just like... That was, was, was such, such a special thing. And, and Esben as a person as well. After we discovered we won three stars, I remember Esben saying, but Mission haven't even seen the cutlery. Like, <laughs> he, he bought new cutlery. And that was always another one of those things that I just remember, or I loved about him. It was always like, there's more to do here. There's more to like say here. There's more, to, there's always this constant like uh, energy to, to, to develop what we're doing and make it uh, even more exciting, even better. Uh, and he knew like, in this restaurant, this was never going to be. And obviously, I, you know, I haven't been to the new Mimo, Mimo 2.0, but you know, it's 100% just a deeper look into his into his into his vision. And I'm sure he's going to have even more ideas because that's just how he is in nature. He's just like obsessive about like let's progress it, let's progress it. And then I think that was also another thing that I just learned in the, in that environment. You know, um, you know, both in 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 Grace and Mimo, there was this sort of hunger for constant progression, progress, progression, never to just kind of go what am I going to do to hit this level but what am I going to do to make this better just keep making it better um, so now you've, you've got your own restaurant how important was it that you have your own stories here so that it's not just a restaurant it's, it's going to have a story and, and how do you encourage your team to kind of tell your story as well here to Grace and Sober I think that was the, that was the thing that I 
you know, just touching on it when it came to the sustainability part, like I, um, I got connected with Sally Bell, uh, James's sister, who then got me onto this microbiome. Like it's, it's all about the soil and nutrient density, and that's where all the problem is. And we've got to look at regenerative farming. And I got sent a load of words I never heard before. And and then I started asking. I wanted to contact farmers, and farmers wouldn't pick up the phone to me, uh, but they would to Sally. So this is how I get in. Like. I just sneak up behind them. Ha, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I've been, you know, I realize that chefs have been just as much of a problem, like uh, in the sense of we'd, we we want a certain shape, a certain color. We've done the dish a certain way. I, I, and, I, and, I, and I very much resonate with that as well because you want that consistency. You want to make sure it's always the same. Like it's different pressure to different people. Uh, but that for a farmer, that is not something he can, you know, always having produce in that particular kind of way for that, amount of time or whatever it might be this it's just very very farming is very very complex and i got to understand how complex it is surely uh, you could just go to supermarket and buy a load of organic stuff it's just the same isn't it oh uh, it's not <laughs> <laughs> it's just not i mean this is also again like i always want to be really clear about like everyone has their sort of their challenges so organic soil association are doing phenomenal things stopping preventing chemicals getting into a soil is is so important our soil is so depleted of nutrients right now we have to eat eight oranges today compared to one orange in the 1960s uh, uh nutrient density levels so low we're trying to drive you know i've always believed that we should eat better meat um it's not eliminating meat because meat is a really important part of our diet and uh, that we can't get from vegetables alone to, um because it's not just that you know the vegetable might contain the the, the vitamin or whatever, so how we absorb it, and we, you know, one of the best ways of absorbing that is through animal fat. It's not yeah. just that, but it's unsustainable. If everyone stopped eating meat, that yeah. would be unsustainable for the planet too. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Cow, cows and ruminants are yeah. like a big part of a regenerative cycle. Yeah. So without them manuring, they can't. I mean, I definitely believe maybe we should probably cut down yeah. on meat. Uh, I'm, I'm, we've said this a lot of times on our philosophies, like. If you're going to eat meat, it's the best quality meat mm. you can afford. And if that means that you have to eat less, that's so be it, you know. I, yeah, I know I that sounds very middle class of us. But <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm on budget. That's where I'm at. <laughs> I, I, I would agree. I think that's something that's really important to say. Like, it's um, uh, less meat is important. The intensive farming is the most, is the most destructive mm-hmm. thing to our planet. It's really bad. Like, I would hand on heart say, like, intensive farming animals is destroying our planet, and it's really bad, and we've got to do something about that. However, eliminating animals from uh, it would, like, say, you say, soil is one way we can sequester carbon. We can't... We, the carbon that's been produced, we can't get rid of it. The only way we can get rid of it is by sequestering it into our soil. And you can do that through a regenerative cycle in, the, in, the, in farming, um, which includes, which is required, we need, <clears throat> excuse me, we, we need animals. We need pigs and sheep and cows to, to do that. Um, but obviously in the right, in that right balance. But like I say, there is this also this that tension where it's, can't get out pitchforks and, and picket fences and say like who's you're wrong they're wrong because it's e- it might be easy for me to say like oh i'm gonna only eat, i believe you should only eat regenerative meat and if you don't then you're a bad person mm-hmm. well but uh everyone's pockets is uh, of different depths mm-hmm. and that's probably the harrowing truth right now there's reading today there's 14.9 million people in the uk that are living in poverty and like can i sit here and say yeah but you should be eating regenerative meat like <laughs> like if they can eat meat that would that would that would be so life-changing for them in terms of, of like the nutrients they're going to get from it because we're already such a nutrient-deprived uh, nation. And so um, it, it, it's, just these, it's just it's so many 
tensions and like and like you know the, the thing I've always wanted with uh, Grace and Saber and how we uh, how we share stories or how we share what's going on with farmers and everything else is to is to just speak just just to say this isn't conversation and this is all this is what our farming looks like and this is the difference it can be how this becomes a solution I don't know I mean we've got an amazing thing like community of agricultural schemes that happen where you can go get veg boxes so you think you pay like 40, 40, 50, 40 to 50 pounds a month mm. it's not the cheapest it's a bit cheaper than like some of your like current uh, delivery box brands so it's a bit cheaper but what it means is if the farmer gets something gets wiped out by a storm the farmer doesn't lose any business you get a little bit of less veg but then it keeps that balance that the farmer can keep on going because I think it's something it's mad it's like uh, 60% of farmers 70, 70, 80 maybe uh, as high as 70% of farmers don't make money in the UK they literally lose money and the ones that do like they're the big farm it's it's. but then in the same in those same statistics they say that uh, 95% of farmers wouldn't change their wouldn't change their career they love what they do mm. so it's like you know they're losing money but they still love what they do you know there's these people there's these craftsmen out there that have got a real dedication and love and almost sacrificial love for what they do um and then, but there's this supply broken supply chain that's going on, which is um, being big way caused by a lot of supermarkets squeezing prices. But then it's again, it goes back to well, if they don't squeeze the prices, then the only then it, there's some tension there where where I believe that if you the less you pay in the supermarket, the only person who loses out is the farmer. But also at the same time, we want the prices to be lower so people can afford to eat real food. Um, so it's I don't know. I haven't got all like I say, I haven't got all the answers. Yeah, it's, it's just the revelation I've gone to. Yeah, yeah. It's just a race to the bottom. Now it's like. Mm-hmm. So many people, it's price first, and I understand that it has to be for a lot of people, but even for some people where it doesn't have to be, it's just mm. like, they're like, oh yeah, but it's cheap, this is cheaper, like, why would mm. you pay this one? But they don't see what, it's actually hurting. When you say about the uh, oranges, you'd have to eat so many oranges mm. to make up for the nutrients that you, mm. is that because of that? Is that because like, the farmer, instead of, so I don't know, sowing, so many seeds, he has to double the amount of seeds, he has to do it more often, so the soil doesn't get a chance to get the nutrients it used to, is that, is that why or? Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a few factors, so we introduced um, uh, chemical agriculture at the end of the Second World War because we needed food, so it was, a, it was a thing that was desperately needed at the time, we needed to produce a lot of food quickly to feed people because we didn't basically have any, um, and so it was a brilliant breakthrough. But then since then, we're now using nine times the amount of chemicals. And it's literally like if I fed, if we all ate antibiotics for 60 years, like we wouldn't have an immune system. We would need more and more antibiotics to fight off all the disease oh, yeah. that goes on. You don't have an immune system. And that's effectively what's happened to our soil. Our soil doesn't have, a lot of our soil doesn't have nutrients. 80% of the world's soil contains glyphosate, um, which is the number one world used uh, fertilizer. And um, this has been linked to all kinds of conditions. And so, yeah, so it, and it's massively depleted our, uh, the nutrients in the soil, which then directly affects the the nutrient density of the produce, and at the same time, monocropping as well is something that's very very cop- common. When you, know, when you plant one one plant in acres and acres, like when you see those acres and acres of raspberries, is, that's destroying the soil. Like the raspberries don't have the raspberries don't have enough in themselves to protect themselves. They need other plants. They need mixed cropping, and so plants kind of feed each other. So disease doesn't uh, disease only attacks weak plants. It doesn't attack healthy ones. So if a, a plant dies or something, it's telling you what it's, it's telling you which nutrients it's lacking. So you don't give it a chemical. You just plant the right plant in there. So a good one is like peas. 
pump nitrogen into soil acting as a natural fertilizer. So when we rest our, when we're resting our garden, we'll put peas out and they'll, they'll put nitrogen into soil acting as a natural fertilizer without needing any chemical inputs. Um, so when you have these fields and fields of raspberries, mm. they, they make up for the protection given by other crops by chemicals. Yeah, yeah, basically. The chemicals are wiping everything out. And that's, that's what the, where they were so clever, where they were so smart with fertilizers, they literally annihilate everything except the thing that's trying to grow. Mm. And like, if you go see these test fields, like I went to a, a, a seed specialist and I saw the test fields and literally like I'm seeing baby leeks grow in desert. It's like a desert around everything is de dead and but this baby leak is growing out of it. Crazy. Like it's like absolutely fine. But obviously right. you said that was good. after World War Two for mm. obvious reasons we needed more crops. But mm. is that still now to keep up with the demand of crops or is it just purely for price or yeah, I think there's, you know, you, you know, your soil gets dependent on it. They try and take it away. Then you get wiped out with disease. You, um, you know, your chemical companies will create contracts. So the farmer then gets tied into those contracts. Uh, seeds get changed to uh, require certain chemicals. Mm -hmm. So without that chemical, they won't survive. So you have to then, one thing, the farmer has to buy the seed and then he has to buy the chemical. Obviously, it gets to a place where... Um, you know, the immune system is so shot that um, they have to start spraying directly onto the food. So since 2006, that's when we first started spraying directly onto food. There's been massive increases of allergens, skin conditions. Um, and, uh, and now there's a statistic I read recently with the Bio Society in the US where two, one in two children have a chronic disorder in, in the US. And it's, and it's one of these things, like I'm not saying like, oh, there's this huge conspiracy, like, oh, I've got to stop the, you know, or try and make a big thing, something out of nothing. It's, it's just that there's clearly a something wrong within our yeah. soil and that when we but because i now taste it when i oh, now i've experienced it going to work with you there is just such a difference in thriving healthy soil that's that's full of life and the produce that comes out of it is just phenomenal and there's definitely something's going on there and they i think there's even this year uh so between january this year and uh now july monsanto who own glyphosate uh, which is Roundup. So if you ever use Roundup, that's yeah. that, that's glyphosate. Yeah. Uh, they've spent eleven billion dollars in lawsuits from people suing them because of conditions they developed, cancers they developed. And all there was a big thing. study released in the Guardian there the other day, wasn't mm. there? Yes, yeah, yeah. It was the same company. So, uh, so you learned about it, and then you real. Like, so th this was before you started here. You you said, well, I'm going to make sure sustainability sustainability is going to be at the heart of what we do here. Mm. Obviously, use the beautiful garden out there mm. you kind of set your story and then how did you, how do you develop that with your chefs now what do you how do you kind of bring them along with you on the journey so yeah i mean uh, again my experience is like when i was in norway and obviously when i got to meet the farmers like i, I wanted our guys to do the same um we've not done as many as we want to but we, we, we've we've done we've done uh, we've done we've done a, a few so far. Uh, we went one. The first one we went to was Whitland Flame, uh, the charcoal makers. Yeah, big fans of them. Aren't yeah, we? yeah, so, all like them, yeah. so interested. <laughs> yeah. And it, and then his whole thing like charcoal could be the best thing in the world for the planet, and it could be the very worst thing for the world. Uh, and just in mind was like blown in terms of what goes into making charcoal, how it can be a really sustainable thing and how it's destructive thing. Like his 15% of the world's carbon emissions come from charcoal production. Uh, whereas his doesn't give any carbon uh, output in the production. Uh, and he actually then, he actually stores up all, all the offshoots that come from, come from making it. And uh, it, it, what I wanted is, well, there's one thing I think as a chef is, 
I've always been told this produce is amazing. Like, I know, Garrett gets strawberries, they're phenomenal. They are, they're so delicious. Like, love them to bits. Um, and they're great, great, great produce. Uh, but I've never, I've never asked oh, what, what farm that come from, how they grow, why it makes them so delicious. Uh, how is that industry? And then when you start asking those questions to the people that, who really care for the land and want to see a change, you start to hear, you start to hear so much, so much you wish you'd, you'd ask more about, you know? Um, so, you know, a good, uh, another good example, we went to go and see Wonder Chocolate. And I, I've always said, like, we don't grow chocolate in the UK. Uh, so it's not I'm not gonna have chocolate dessert on the menu and I don't really see a cultural connection so I had a rice pudding on but that's because as kids who grew up with rice pudding it's a big part of our our childhood and everything else like that and our our culture but chocolate's like it's just chocolate bars and I was like I'm not sure where that fits in the menu right now but but then I went to see Wonder Chocolate you know he said to me you know I asked him like how much do you think is the minimum price you should pay for a bar of chocolate and he said £5.50 if you pay anything less can't guarantee it, but he's pretty sure it comes from child slave labour. And you're like, no, it can't. That can't be. That can't be true. But from what he's come to understand, what he's come to learn, that's what is the reality. And that's also another thing as well. Like I would, everything I come to learn, gladly be told I'm wrong and stuff, or I'm very open to what other people might have to say because the it's so murky. It's so like there's so many grey areas. You know, it's like it's you know we've got one. The strawberry. We haven't got strawberries on the menu yet, but we're we're hoping to when we come back and uh, from holiday in August. And the part of the reason is it's just finding a strawberry supplier. But we've got we've got one lady who we're using now, and she struggles with uh, uh, red spider mite. So the only treatment she gives to strawberries is the red spider mite. So if if she didn't, she'd lose half a crop. So if I stand there and go, well, I'm sorry, you've got uh, that's not acceptable. If you're not organic, you're killing the planet. Then then it's never going to help the situation. But if I get alongside her and celebrate the fact that she's only using one whereas strawberries is uh, is seen as something that um, has the most chemicals of all of all fruit or all produce in the world strawberries and spinach are always fighting for number one spot for the most chemicals most chemicals used and this girl woman's using one that is a big step forward compared to none and it isn't perfect but if i don't if if we don't support her or support them then how the, how is there ever going to be any change and I think that's the kind of question we're going to ask ourselves is like, you know, if we're going to see real change, then sometimes we have to, we have to see the truths and try and work through them. And there's obviously there's lines we draw, um, but like the number one, if you're seeing someone who cares their land, is doing everything they can um, and just is battling through the challenges of the realities, you know, then it's, it's kind of hard to say, like you can't say no to that, you know. How hard is it to kind of maintain a menu when you're specifically like, focusing on that kind of food like how long can you keep the menu on for does it have to change every month or so it changes i would say we, we're on a track of trying to do it almost do a dish a week it's hard because our staffing we're battling a little bit but we've been i've been really proud of what the uh of what the team managed to put together i've got a brilliant sous chef in john who's uh, who's really driven uh developing dishes uh as well and keeping that on the boys as well have been have been great as well bringing their ideas to the table um because literally things go out of season like that and you know we are literally in between end of december until june there's not a single fruit in the uk it's all apples apples have to come off the tree there's nothing so organically speaking mm. there's nothing so we were using organic apples up until then but that's the only fruit we get hold of that and yorkshire rhubarb but that is a vegetable 
And uh, so that's the only fruit we've been using uh, until uh, until literally middle of June. And then apples that she just disappeared off the face of the planet. And then we had gooseberries and cherries. And then we just managed to roll it out. It's kind of like, because I didn't know what I was going to do. <laughs> literally, like, the supplier was like, oh, apples aren't great this week. Like, you have to see how, what you think. And they were pretty much, they were good for juicing, but that was it. But luckily, we had gooseberries come on. So we put a, and cherries come in. So we, we, we put a bit of a fruit bowl serving on. Uh, but that was also a combination of using fruit from our garden that also came in the right time. So it's, it's, uh, it's hard. It isn't easy. And also, like I said, like, if uh, I really I really hope that um, we can find solutions so that people can, that uh, other restaurants can uh, try, and work, uh, try and work in this way and work directly. Because if we work directly with farms, it's much better for them. It's a much better way to support, support farms. However, it's, it's complicated. Like, we're having to drive over there ourselves, having to pick up directly. You've got individual relationships. It's a lot of work. And then when you, if you're trying to run you know, a big restaurant, you know, or even a restaurant, say, that's doing, you know, big steakhouse that's doing undercovers, like, it's just not, it's never going to work. It's never going to change anything. So definitely don't think we have all, all the answers there. But. Is that where the fermentation comes in to make the most of the every ingredient? Or, well, I suppose not really fermentation. It's like... Um, Preserving. It's mm. like a focus of you, of making the most of every ingredient. Mm. And you have to kind of do that. Yeah. We get things very... Um, <laughs> we always just joke about in the kitchen how we don't have capacity because we just it, it'd be something's there and we've got to take it and we've had to let some things go so uh, it could be elderflower was around is there for about two weeks and it's gone we've had really busy weeks where we've not been able to get out we've got well it's these guys either go out today or we're not getting any of it uh, and so it's just getting it and then just pickling it like, and I saw Oh, one of our uh, suppliers who works with small farms, they had black currants, so I just ordered uh, 10 kilos to preserve them straight away for the made jam out of them, ready for the winter. Um, we had, I went and picked up 20 kilos of cherries from Organic Farm, um, an amazing organic farmer. Uh, he's so passionate about what he does, and he just he grows things for flavor, and his stuff is just like, it's insanely delicious. And he is, is tree, he doesn't always get cherries, a lot of times the crows get them, so he can't sell them. Mm. But this year he got quite a lot, so we just went over, got 20 kilos from them, and we've just uh, got some fermenting on the bench over there, some lacto fermenting, some have gone into pickles, some gone into sweet brine, and then we'll just use them at a later date. Uh, because I've just realised all the fruit comes now, so it's going to be now until like the end of August, and then f- soft fruit's over, and then that's really it in the UK. We'll have apples and pears, and then nothing for six months. <laughs> it's really like I was like, there's got to be loads of things: apricots, peaches. Like no, like the frost. Like you, know, you learn small things, like the frost that we had. Do you remember we had that little bit of heat, little um, blast of heat in spring, and then the frost came. Well, that annihilated most of the apricots and the UK, apricots and peaches in the UK. So it's because of the sun, flowers came out, frost killed it. So you're getting all these things that is, you know, it's kind of restaurant where we're trying to only source from within the UK. And, you know, we've got some stuff that, we, uh, coffee and sugar that we take from abroad and things. But we were trying to tell the story of UK uh, British suppliers. It, it really narrows us down. But then I really believe that focuses your creativity. And even though it feels very limited, it isn't. It galvanizes your creativity because you just don't have the options. Rather than looking at a table full of wonderful mm-hmm. things from all over the world, I've got a much limited uh, table. And uh, I feel like you just, you just get so much more. You can get you start to think of so much more ideas out of what you've already got. Uh, How would you describe your style of food here? Good question. Um, so how do I want to describe really? How would I describe our food? I mean, uh, it's, I get, you know, British food that focuses on uh, the story of our land, but it's weird. Well, it's it not like modern justice, British or like yeah, you know, yeah, you know, it's, yeah. it's. I mean, it's it's 
there's everything about there's touches on there's there's touches on the element of nostalgia. I like to keep things in the familiar. And, you know, it, I don't want it to be wild and wacky and, and uncomfortable and weird. It's like yes, we use beef uh, beef garum and you know, which is beef mince that's been fermented for three months uh, into like a that becomes like a soya sauce effectively, and it sounds absolutely gross. Something you have cooked for three months <laughs> at sixty degrees, but it's insanely delicious. Yeah. And we use it as a seasoning, like we do all our garums. That's just got us on the garum train. So we have, like, we have mushroom garum, lamb garum, chicken wing garum. Like we're getting as many garums on as we can. So we just got like, and you know, we've had dishes where we don't use salt, we just use garum instead. So like salt's brilliant, but like with a garum, I can season something and make something taste more meaty or add a certain depth of richness to some like layer on those flavors. Kind of you know, give us a really exciting larder in some respects. So, I, so it was, my question's got, I've gone off on a tangent. What was the question? You kind of got it. But it was like, um, how would you describe your style of food? Mm. I would say it's probably familiar flavors, but in an unfamiliar kind of presentation. Yeah, yeah. It's either way. I mean, it's, I mean, it's garden, it's garden and farm-led cooking. It's mm. all about celebrating the British Isles. I mean, if it was like, that was how I would describe it. I mean, it's, it's hard because it, I want to say like, those questions often like, you know, it's an Asian fusion, it's British fusion, it's modern British, it's like, a, 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 and I guess for myself, like it's, I get, if we're going to nail it down, it would be uh, garden and farm-led uh, British cooking, but kept in, a, kept in the familiar, you know. That uh, sounds fair. If someone was going to come, what's the, op- are you open, like, it's not, I know it's not all week, mm-hmm. but do you open Thursday, Friday? Yeah, so we open, we couldn't open on Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And can, we, you, can you come just for dinner or, because, a lot of the time, people say, oh, you have to do the whole night stay, but you can just come for dinner. Yeah, yeah, no, you yeah. can just can just come for dinner. I mean, uh, we have more tables available for people who just want to come for dinner than we do for overnight uh, overnight guests. So, I mean, it's often, there's two entry points, and we also do lunch on Saturdays. So mm-hmm. it's um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday dinner, and then Saturday lunch as well. And But Saturday lunch is a bit... Uh, is, is an eight-course lunch menu and a bit cheaper at seventy-five pounds, and kind of a bit more of a, an easier entry point. Like I know <clears throat> some people get a bit uh, of you know they see fifteen courses and they think, oh, how can I eat fifteen courses of food? But you know, in most restaurants, even when they say like eight or nine course tasting menus, like you end up eating fourteen, yeah, fifteen courses. It's all those lectures. <laughs> but I just don't. I, they're like I just say exactly. How it is. It's just fifteen courses. It's just basically pretty much the same as you know a lot of other places. I don't. It's not that many more than others. But I do also very much take into account. Like I like people to feel good when they leave and not like too stuffed or overfull. And we're always working on that. There's, there's very little, if any, starch in the menu. It's mm. you know we have a bread course. That's about the starchiest dish. And or it's not hungry. because hungry would be even worse. Oh, hungry! Yeah, hungry. <laughs> you're having 15 yeah, courses. A big disaster. I mean, the achievement after 15 courses leave hungry. But uh, I, I do um, really take that into account. I want people to feel content and, and like they can, yeah, they've, they've enjoyed the meal, but don't feel like they've got to roll out. You know, yeah. there's nothing worse than having an uncomfortable stomach after uh, lots of food. What so. does the night stay involve? Do you have you have your dinner? What do you meet out in the garden and have a talk? Do I imagine that or? Yeah, no, yeah. So you do um, uh, check in is at three. And my wife, uh, Annetta, is the um, house manager, sorry. She um, meet, meet, meets and greets uh, our guests and gets them start, gets them sat down and introduced and, uh, and settled. And then uh, Chris and uh, Tamsin arrange a little welcome drink. Um, there's often something like garden lead that we've made ourselves or you know, an interesting um, drink of some sort. Uh, we have a few options, maybe just even just a beer if that's what you want to have. And then I have a welcome snack. And then after that, we go for a garden tour. I take on a garden tour, I'll show you around what we're growing and what we're working on and just explain it like just d- dipping into little bits of what we do. Like, mm-hmm. the, 
as well with Grace and Saber, all this stuff, it's the same, it sounds like it could be super heavy and like some big, uh, I'm giving you some big TED talk when you're here or something like that, but <laughs> is, uh, ultimately this is somebody's birthday or anniversary or special occasion and I'm, I don't, I've never wanted to create a restaurant that takes that away. Like it's, yeah. it's there, it's, I guess the evening, it's their evening to enjoy and I keep, and, and we do that by, I do a little intro of explaining what we do and then we keep all the explanations nice and light. We've been focused just maybe talking about some of the, uh, mentioning the suppliers, but we don't go heavy because if you're interested, then you can ask away. And like, you know, as you guys can see, once you get me started, I don't tend to stop. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I just leave them the space and let them enjoy at their pace. Because uh, if you're interested, you're going to ask. And if you're not, then you've still been here and you're going to have a great time and, and, and taste some, uh, hopefully have some tasty food. Um, and so, yeah, and then after they see, after the garden tour, and that, that takes them to the room. And uh, you have your own rooms here. It's not part of the Hampton Manor itself. But you've got your own courtyard rooms. Yes, yeah. yeah. So we have five garden suites, yeah. um, and like basically two in the classic hotel language, two are like junior suites and uh, a master suite, and two regular suites. If you've not seen them, you need to go and have a look on Instagram and have a look at them because they're stunning. Oh yes, yeah. stunning. Yeah, good rooms. Each each one's a different. Uh, each one has been uh, is a reflection of a different craft style. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like whether it's the Whittler and that style of wood making, or the Weaver um, or the Ebonist, it's all different styles of wood making. And so and Fiona's gone out across the country to try and find these different people um, and create some really beautiful rooms. So each one's different. It is quite different. They all got these handmade uh, bath bathtubs were made by Warrington Rose, uh, which comes with a a, um, a really lovely bath ritual that's been put together by Harvest Skincare. Um, so the whole you know the. We do everything we can to kind of just fully immerse you. So also, I don't know what you've been going through when you come back, like when you when you've arrived. Like bad could be everything from bad traffic, childcare problems, something's going on at work. Maybe we just had an argument before you arrived, and we we do we just try and do everything we can to get you as relaxed as possible and just fully immersed into into the surroundings and just be able to disconnect um, and and start having a great time from when you arrive. Is uh, there breakfast then in the morning or? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, obviously after you've come for dinner, we do breakfast in the morning. It's like a little four-course breakfast we put together. I mean, again, it's not an overwhelming amount of food. We try to make sure it's right. But it's, again, it's that everything's got a story. So we just give it that space to have a story. I mean, I literally, I could put everything out in front of you and here's your <laughs> breakfast. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's a good breakfast. And there's my yogurt and there's a bit of this. And it's your too my, my hot course. Like, but we tried to make it all a bit of an experience, and there's there's an element, there's a, there's a space for a story for everything. Uh, I mean, is it even, a surprise, or can you tell us a bit about what's on the menu? Is it? Yeah, so no, gladly no. So I mean, it's just you know, before, uh, like for example, breakfast like when a honey that we use is uh, from Maggie and Noel, and this woman has uh, as anaphylaxia, as anaphylaxia is that the right term to bee stings. Yeah, she's so passionate yeah, about bees. That's brave. Nothing will change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's bonkers but i've never met someone so passionate about honey and it comes out in that honey it's just phenomenal like uh you you just get so excited about it and then because i then the yogurt course goes you know we bring down the yogurt with the with the honey right then it gives that space to tell that story i don't like ram it down the throat but Mm. if i just put it all out at once you would you kind of miss some of those details and that's kind of like a good example of where that allowed what that allows us to do but i Onto the food, onto the onto the evening menu, we're using a lot of lamb right now, and again, like that whole animal thinking. So uh, we have a tomato dish, which which I know you've had that 
has um, uh, we make a juice out of the tomatoes and then the thinking was that whenever you're making dashi uh, you use katsubushi which is smoked and dried tuna flakes mm. but and obviously not we, uh, we don't really get tuna here we thought we'd <laughs> give it with um, smoked and dried lamb heart you know we started working with Sophie Arlett uh, Sophie Arlett who uh, has Lavington lamb she's one of the only shepherds in the country that grows a lamb for flavour and because she does that and she crosses Hebridean with South Downs because she does that she has a lamb that's a very small muscle structure and black wool and those two things will never sell at market so if you take your lamb to market there's all these buyers I have that one that one all they're looking for is white wool and, and large muscle structure so if you've got small no one, no one will touch it even though it's sensationally delicious yeah. so even as a consumer these things are happening to us all the time decisions about choosing the best tasting most nutrient dense well reared animals that can be taken away from us just from that bureaucracy and that that red that red tape and obviously we source directly from them we buy whole animals but we you know is it hearts aren't always something she's, she sells a lot of so we we tend to take quite a lot of the hearts like say smoke them and dry them and then uh, and then use that as like a katsubushi in the tomato broth. So there's no salt in the tomato uh, juice that we make. It's just seasoned by the lamb, the lamb heart. And it just creates a really, and that's the first course we serve with a, with a tomato that comes with tahete pickle and sweet sicily. And it creates a very herbal, very fresh start, but because of the umami depth, it really gets your palate going. So it's not a salty beginning as well as quite a fresh beginning. So yeah, I mean, and then we've also got Really love our lobster dish at the moment we have on, which is just uh, half a lobster tail. One of the things I fell in love with, with always in Mission Star Cooking, has always been like the luxuriousness of it, of just like, doof, like eat this, <laughs> eat this whole truffle, like jam this caviar down your mouth. And I remember going to, and it was a moment I had when I went to, got treated to go and eat at Franzen uh, in Stockholm. And they they do this bit at the beginning where they slide open this door and they show you through all the produce and everything you're going to eat. And then uh, they knew we were industry and they brought out three shots of vodka and uh, and then uh, three massive spoons of caviar. And I never had the combination of caviar and vodka before. So good. Like, mm. I'm not a vodka drinker. I don't really like it at all. But it was, it was one of those, like, uh, food memories I'll always have of that. But the quantity of caviar, just like straight down your mouth. Like this is, <laughs> this is just not normal to go and do this. And I love that element of luxury. And I always wanted to do a lobster serving where it's just like, you know, you get a nice piece of lobster. You get to like really tackle a piece of lobster. I've, I've eaten in other places where it's, you know, again, it's so expensive. It might be chopped up or it's a little piece, but to eat a whole tail. So we do that with, we take the heads of the lobster and roast them off and make a, a, a almost like a biscuit out of them. Um, but, um, rather than having tomatoes and other vegetables in it that to concentrate the flavour, we finish it with um, toasted buckwheat koji, which brings a really sort of like uh, body body to it, that body depth of flavour to it. And then the suppressata that's been made by uh, a charcuterie company in London that only use high welfare pigs. And the suppressata is an Italian version of chorizo and has a lovely spice to it. And then we finish it with loads of lobster butter. We split it with loads of lobster butter. So it's just like really rich, intense lobster dish that's just been elevated by a little bit of spice in the, in the suppressata um, and kind of all been held up by the, the toasted koji. It's really, really love that. And um, we've also just had a, John was working on this dish with kohlrabi where we cook it in brown butter and finish it with pickled elderflower 
and um, and marigolds, and then the sauce is whey, uh, smoked whey with butter, celery vinegar, and elderflower pickle and mackerel garum. So the mackerel's one, of the, mackerel garum's one of those cool ones. So basically, because of the guts, all you take all the guts and the so once we fill it, I fill it all the mackerel, all the guts and bones and the head and everything. You just we blend that up with salt and then ferment it for three months, and you basically end up with this like fish sauce effect. But obviously, it tastes of mackerel. So this sauce, because again gets this lovely depth and richness in it that comes from mackerel rather than using salt. But the nice thing is, is it always throughout the menu as well, we try and create those little connections, those little closed loops. Like you've got a mackerel course coming up after that, and but before then you've eaten, you've eaten all the guts, and now you're going to eat the actual mackerel itself. Mm. Um, and that whole sort of like one that closed circle thinking, but also just like there's so many uses out of everything. Like you know, you could you use the have the lamb heart at the beginning and it's almost a, I like to think it's a precursor to the main course which is the lamb itself like you know whether you're having the shoulder or you're having the loin it's, it's, it's building up it's building up to that and then we still then the next course is uh, is made from is a course made entirely from everything that comes from making books or cheese which is made from sheep's milk so and obviously it's just because there's season this is the season we're in there's, you know, that's sheep and la- like lamb that's, what, that's what's around right now so we're, just, we're kind of leaning into a lot of that um, but it's an amazing ethos to have and think about a whole menu 15 courses mm. and there's so many links between all the courses and the, as you've just pointed out there's so many links mm. between them like that's when you're sitting down and you're getting told about this mm. it makes it really interesting to eat because mm. you are sort of joining the dots yourself as well like oh this is, well that was from there and that was mm. this like it adds another dimension to the experience I think. yeah I think there's an element of just trying to um, again without being without being forceful just understand that there's, there's always a human being behind everything you've done like everything we eat is crafted not just by ourselves as chefs but also with as uh, farmers and growers, and uh, everyone, and it's just great to celebrate them. It's a real privilege to celebrate them um, because they've gone through real hardship to, to 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 make that happen and and to stay the path. I think it's so hard. Like some of these guys have been laughed at for like not using this stuff, like seeing their crops die or uh, going through struggles. But they do it because they know it's the best for the produce and they know it's the best for our land and our environment. And they've kind of been you know often taking this heat on very very low salaries. And just because they love what they do. Um, so, yeah, it becomes a real privilege to kind of get to celebrate the stuff. Does it feel, did you have a bit of pressure to like do the best with them ingredients? Yeah, definitely. I mean, as well, like, we get things wrong, we try stuff. Uh, and that's, that's really sad when, when it goes wrong. But also, you know that if you don't try something or if you don't, if we're not testing out a preservation, we're going to get our preservation things wrong. It's so like up and down. We made a elderflower kombucha that went that tasted like alcohol it wasn't very nice at all uh, and I was like how like it wasn't even a week like it should be like super sweet and it was it was like literally like uh, like a uh, elderflower vodka it was weird I'm, I don't even fully explain it now but and I don't even know if this is the answer because again you know, we're always learning like we uh, but we, we started fermenting black garlic next to it and apparently garlic releases releases a, a gas when it's fermenting which which slows down fermentation. So if you were to, if it was, you know, what, we, what my then belief is that because we had the black garlic on, that disrupted the kombucha, the kombucha uh, fermenting, and it didn't ferment right, and it just went, just went bad. So um, we, now we know. <laughs> but sadly, we lost. No, we sadly we lost fifteen liters of elderflower kombucha, which I was heartbroken about because obviously we're not getting that back. So yeah, it does. You, you do feel a sense of responsibility, and also there's a, there's a cost that comes with it. I feel like. I hope 
that we're always paying the right price for everything. Like uh, I never, uh, I, 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 I will gladly always take the first first price that I'm told. And if I can't afford that price, I, and I'm obviously to be honest, I can't can't afford that price. And we we'll try and make it work in some way if we can. But um, because there the, there's there's such value in what these guys do. Awesome. Mm. I think we we could sit here chatting about this. I mean, I'm. I'm mad into this kind of stuff, but we've talked up like a couple of hours of your time already. No, no that's right. Uh, that's quite all right. Was there anything else you wanted to go over before? Mm, no. Is there anything particularly you want to you want to add in there, or anything like? Obviously, I know I've talked a lot. Um, yeah, I think you kind of like even like I, I know I sent you a few bits this morning, but you kind of naturally covered it before mm. I had to ask you, so it's it's all good. It's the perfect guest, mate. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I was like, I just feel like oh, this guy is just is this guy is talking, yeah. isn't he? Well, people mate, hear us it, talk. They're sick mm. of that. The, the worst podcast talking. ever would be if it's just me and car talking and mm. like the guest talks up three times mm. that'd be I, know, like, yeah. I probably wouldn't even release it <laughs> <laughs> no. you, got, you got your questions or yeah I've got my quick, quick I'm not going to stop calling call them, call them quick them they're not quick. quick I've got questions that are about you mm, of course yeah. please feel free to ask answer them quickly <laughs> <laughs> just a fun way to end the podcast yeah gladly what's your favourite movie Oh, no, I've listened to your podcast and you're going to ask this and I've not, uh, I've not prepared myself. <laughs> Actually, no. What was the movie they showed you in America that they made, they paid to make you stay behind and watch? Oh, great question. <laughs> Whiplash. It was Whiplash. That's a great movie. It what is. What is that? What is that? Oh, the man. Jeremy Let me see. One oh. college in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was, but the thing is, honestly, like, I, I, and I resonated, I knew what he's talking about when it comes to that because not that, don't get me wrong on this, crystal clear. That is not how <laughs> it should be. It was, it's incredibly abusive. But there's, but one thing it taught me, and I think this is like some of the things, the reflections that I wanted to to understand. Why did I go through that? Why do I accept that? And there is that element in that movie where that guy is just so determined. He's got into his head he, that this is the way that I'll learn how to drum if I follow and lead this guy. And there's a level of leadership that comes in, which is the most, uh, which is a very toxic one where you blindly follow your leader. And as a leader, you never want that. You never want people to blindly follow you because they'll, they'll never pick up your mistakes. Uh, you're, you're basically, you know, you're, as a leader, I'm flying blind because my team will do whatever I say. Uh, and that's ultimately where he was at and uh, became so driven to become to the point where uh, obviously see, uh, seeing how it goes in the movie like it almost breaks him yeah I think it's 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 one of those things where I think it may be one of those moments like where would be my limit yeah. like, what would what would what would have been that point I'd I just said no and walked off I don't <laughs> that's a bit that probably might scare me I mean I I, I think I, one of those, I collapsed running a half marathon in Oslo that was one of those moments where I, I, I kind of got a bit shaken up because I was like, I've always thought I could persevere through anything in my head. Like, just keep going, just keep your head down, keep going, it's going to be okay. But then we have limits. And yeah. I think that's what that movie's all about. It's like, what happens if you try to become limitless, you know? And uh, what ends up Do you know, that was actually him playing the drums in every scene as well. Is it? Yeah, he used to, he used mm. to be a drummer. Really? And he just practiced and practiced and practiced okay. to get it, which again is that dedication. Yeah, film, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. The to do it, to oh, that's actually things, insane. Really. That's amazing. What's your favorite band or artist, DJ, rapper? Oh, um, whatever. I would say recent times, uh, a guy called Askir is an Icelandic uh, singer songwriter. Really love his stuff. But Block Party has always been a big. Uh, yeah, yeah I was I like party. but it, they're a bit different now very very different now I think I actually they... prefer them now uh, I really it's heard mad. I like the really early stuff then the yeah. middle stuff I sort of 
was a bit indifferent to. And then mm. the new stuff, it's like, well, where's this come from? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What's your favourite big fast food chain? Ooh. Someone that's just on about sustainability, it's probably not the best question. <laughs> <laughs> like, which is the right answer? Um, you're like, this is the worst quick fire answers ever. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was really, cause I, I, I can't really do McDonald's because it's it, my stomach, my st- I get my, I get really bad stomach off McDonald's. Oh, I actually know one, if it, but it's not here. It's not here, and I wish that's it was. Fine. It's, it's, a Swedish, it's a Swedish one. Uh, called uh, Max Burger. Yeah, I love that. Their burgers were like they were so good. And obviously, I think it's just obviously Swedish people and Norwegian people right now like oh, Max Burger. But genuinely, I'm like <laughs> Max Burger is delicious. They're like sauces. This is sauces are different, you know, and like yeah. the meat, everything's a bit different. The setup's a bit different in the burger. Uh, so yeah, and we used to often have to service at Ma- uh, MIMO. We go and uh, max out at Max Burger. Right. So yeah, what's your favorite dish you cook at home? Oh, I love um, spaghetti, prawns, chili, part, like, I don't want it, like, spaghetti la mongole is the name of it, but uh, it's something that Annette and I used to have all the time. We always have, like, some frozen prawns <laughs> in the freezer. It's super fast, chili, prawns, egg yolk. I oh, love it, love it, love it, love it. And what's your favourite food destination in the world? Oh, it's tough, but it's definitely between Lyon and Copenhagen. And I'd probably, if I was like, oh, where would you go tomorrow? It would be Copenhagen. Like, it's just so much good food there. Because yeah. so there's so many interesting things happening and such a var- variance. But food I had in Lyon was amazing. But I understand super, super classic food may not be for everyone, but Lyon, I, I, I still, yeah, have great memories of Lyon. And Chicago is great as well. They're all, there's all so many, there's too many good places. Too <laughs> yeah, many good places. But yeah, Copenhagen <laughs> probably, if I was like, where would I go tomorrow? Awesome. Done. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Awesome. It's Absolutely love this place, man. Love what you're doing. Um, just keep grafting, man. I think it's, this is, we said when we came here, we feel like this is on the edge of doing something very special. It does. It, it's definitely got, uh, not to compare it to anywhere else because it feels unfair to, but it feels like this has got a never, another level to it. That mm. It's just, it's got a special vibe about it, I think. Mm. Thank you. Appreciate that. We both were so impressed when we were here. Massively. Uh, I, I'm, I feel. I mean, it's like uh, I feel very humble to be to be in the, the to be in the Birmingham food scene. It's like some there's so many exciting things going on, and it's like everyone's doing their thing, and it's just this. It feels very privileged to be be in this food scene. So and I'm very humble by those words. I really appreciate that, and like I say, like we just uh, um, love loving what we're doing. Awesome. awesome. Thanks, Chef. Thank you. Right, cheers, guys.